Can you still win your league? We'll talk about that and more with Glenn Colton from SiriusXM next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 21st. It's show number 50 of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Glenn Colton from SiriusXM and FantasyAlarm.com about players with some noteworthy recent performances, about calculating your chances in a category league. We'll have listener questions, facts and flukes, and more. We'll also have our regular weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about rating recent player production, next year players, and more. We'll have player news from the National League, with Harold Nichols looking at the Marlin Bird trade, the Chase Utley trade, and other National League roster news, and from the American League with Jock Thompson looking at Derek Holland, Jason Kipnis both back in action, and many more. And we'll have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Phillies catching prospect Andrew Knapp. In our Playing Time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at the game of musical chairs going on with Houston's corner infield spots. In our Frequent Flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Desmond Jennings, Chris Coughlin, and Franklin Gutierrez. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at St. Louis right-hander Carlos Martinez in San Diego to face right-hander Ian Kennedy, Minnesota right-hander Mike Pelfrey in Baltimore against right-hander Kevin Gosman, and two other matchups. And in Master Notes, I will talk about the endless dump trading debate. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The post-waiver trades have started. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Well, we had a a couple of waiver wire trades, including a uh, trade just the other night. The Giants have acquired Marlon Byrd from the Reds, apparently to replace outfielder Hunter Pence, who went on the DL the other day with an oblique strain. Uh, what is the current state of the San Francisco outfield with these moves? So, yeah, Marlon Byrd is headed to uh, headed to San Francisco and is going to uh, find some playing time, maybe, in the San Francisco outfield. Although, you know, the the problem there is he, he may actually get less playing time in San Francisco than he was getting in uh, in Cincinnati. We're we're uh, projecting a playing time loss of thirty percent for Marlon Byrd as he moved to San Francisco. Um, Byrd has had a pretty good season once again. But, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, almost 38, um, probably is not going to get as whole, uh, as much time to play in AT&T Park as he did in Great American Ballpark in Cincinnati. And certainly that change in ballpark is a huge switch in, uh, his home run, uh, advantage, disadvantage numbers. 33% advantage for a right-handed batter in Great American in Cincinnati. 33% disadvantage in, uh, AT&T Park. So, uh, Bird will, uh, will take, uh, Herta Pence's spot initially. Herta Pence has got a strained oblique. Uh, but Noriaoki is just back, uh, back from the DL. He'll be in left field. Uh, Angel Pagan is out at the moment, but he'll be back really soon. So the Giants have a lot of pieces to move around right now. 
at least they've got a lot of major league caliber pieces to move around, which is, is more than we can say when we start talking about, uh, about Cincinnati in a few minutes. But, uh, so Bird will get to play. Um, he's having a productive season. Uh, I don't think he's going to get to play a lot because these guys are going to come back from the DL and they'll then have an established outfield. So, uh, I would not, uh, I, I would, if I were, if I were a Marlon Bird owner, I'd look to trade him. Uh, because uh, I don't think he's going to get a whole lot of time out there. I guess a lot's going to hinge on how quickly Hunter Pence returns from this oblique strain. They are optimistic that he can come back in the minimum 15 days or maybe a few days more, but in early September, which would certainly not help uh, Marlon Bird's chances of playing time. But I think maybe the wild card here, Nick, might be uh, Angel Pagan, who's uh, the center fielder in, in San Francisco. He's on the DL, but even when he comes back, he's been having a really soft offensive year, and with uh, San Francisco really struggling to get the playoff spot, they might think maybe Pagan can sit on the bench while Bird uh, uh, plays regularly in center fielder, which, which he's capable of doing, and, and adds some stick to uh, a lineup that could use it. That's very true. Pagan has not uh, has not had a great year, so that could uh, th- there could be some uh, playing time uh, uh, back and forth at that point. So, I, you know, what's going to happen at this point is the Giants are going to be moving some pieces around to get the most productive lineup they can and to stay competitive and as they're uh, still in this thing. So... Uh, it, it, they'll probably go with a hot hand in some, uh, uh, in, in some regards, and uh, we'll have to just see what happens. Meanwhile, in Cincinnati, you alluded to the fact that their, uh, their uh, outfield has lots of moving parts like San Francisco's, but few of those moving parts are really big league caliber. In addition to trading Marlon Bird, of course, they've put Billy Hamilton on the DL with some kind of shoulder issue, and it's not clear how quickly that will resolve itself. They're saying, again, it'll be a relatively short DL stint, but one never knows, and certainly the Reds don't want to gamble with Billy Hamilton as a foundational piece on a year that where they're going nowhere. So you have all of a sudden two-thirds of your outfield is gone. What happens with all of this playing time in Cincinnati's outfield? Two areas of the playing time in Cincinnati are Brennan Bosch and Jason Bourgeois. And uh, you're, you're completely forgiven if you're going who at this point uh, because uh, th- these are not guys that uh, have stellar, uh, stellar major league careers behind them. At this point, Jason Bourgeois is 33 years old. He has gotten 51 at-bats in the current season, one home run, seven RBIs, 235 batting average, uh, an incredible power index of 46. So uh, he's going to see some more playing time. He's uh, had, a, had a little bit of a, uh, a hit rate issue, and so maybe that batting average will come up a little bit. Uh, but Jason Bourgeois is not someone you want to jump out, I think, and, and add to your fantasy team. Uh, the, other, uh, the other guy that's going to get some playing time out of all of this uh, is going to be Brennan Bosch, and Brennan Bosch is kind of in the same situation. A, a left-handed hitter, 30 years old, currently batting uh, 136 in 59 at bats. He's had even uh, even worse luck than uh, uh, than Bourgeois, but uh, 0.14 I, 63% contact rate. So uh, again, a guy who's not making a lot of contact, and right now a, a PX of 20, if you can believe it, out of in 59 at bats. So neither of these uh, guys are someone I think you're going to want to uh, add to your uh, to your roster for the stretch run. I guess it depends on the 
conditions of your league, a very deep National League only might have room for somebody who's just going to get some plate appearances, pick up, you know, five runs or three RBIs or something like that. You know, when I first heard the news, I thought back to 2011, and uh, Jason Bourgeois had 31 stolen bases that year in just 238 at-bats, so he certainly has the wheels, but uh, since then he really hasn't had a chance to exercise them, mostly because he hasn't been in the big leagues, but even this year in 50 at-bats, he has only one stolen base, which doesn't indicate a a, a huge source of steals down the stretch either. Clearly have not been giving him the green light in the few times when he's been been able to get on base. So, And uh, it would be surprising, I think, if that changed at this point in the season. Not an on-base machine at the best of times. Uh, Jason Bourgeois was down around 230 this year for an on-base percentage. I'm sorry, 290 this year for an on-base percentage, which is uh, really subpar for anybody who wants to steal bases. We should also mention, Nick, that uh, the uh, Reds called up a minor league center fielder, Ryan Lamar, who's been uh, profiled in the call-ups column at BaseballHQ.com. His reputation, uh, good glove, no bat. And there's another guy who might be a little more intriguing for people who are gambling or have keeper leagues. Adam Duvall is a third baseman who came over in the previous Cincinnati-San Francisco trade, the Mike Leake deal. He's not going to replace Todd Frazier, clearly at shortstop, but the Reds say they might take a look at him in outfield because he can really hit. He's got a, a way above average slugging percentage in his minor league career. They might be curious to see if that translates to Major League Baseball's level. Yeah, they may indeed want to see what that uh, you know see what that looks like. We're projecting a, a twenty four at bats for uh, uh, for uh, Duvall at this point, but uh, PX of one forty one. So uh, certainly he has some power, uh, and uh, they, as you said, they may want to see what they what they've got. Uh, this is a guy who makes a decent contact. Uh, probably we we would expect a, a mid seventies kind of contact rate. Uh, so not a, a total swing and miss guy. Uh, and might bring a little bit of power to that lineup, uh, but he's not expected to play a whole lot. Mind you, if all he has to do is replace Jason Bourgeois or Brennan Bosch, maybe Skip Shoemaker, we didn't even mention him, a fine pinch hitter for the Reds, but not much else. Uh, moving on, uh, there's a bit of a surprise in Philadelphia. The Phillies had been saying very vociferously that Chase Utley was not likely to be traded, then a few days ago, they traded him to the Dodgers. So this has ramifications for both the Dodgers and the Phillies. What's going on here? Well, you know, Chase Utley headed to the Dodgers. They've uh, Howie Kendrick, Kendrick has had some issues at this point, some injury issues. So Chase Utley really, I think, in many ways is just some depth for the Dodgers at this point. Uh, may actually get to play less in Los Angeles than he was playing in Philadelphia. And Chase Utley has had his own injury issues this year. But this has been, you know, if we've been waiting for Chase Utley to have that year in which he finally shows his age, this has been it. Uh, at this point, at 249 at-bats, hitting only 217, five home runs, and... The, the thing that's happened this year that, that really shows Chase Utley's age is his hard contact index has dropped from 113 a season ago to 99 this year, his PX down from 95 to 75, and what we've clearly got is a downward trend in, his, in Utley's power, uh, and that is, has certainly cut into his, uh, his fantasy as well as his real life uh, of baseball pro- productivity. If you look at other things, it, it hasn't been a bad season. His ground ball rate's up a little bit. Uh, his, uh, uh, but his contact rates uh, remains pretty good. His walk rate remains pretty good. It's just that we're seeing some of that power disappear as Chase Utley ages. 
Boy, you hit the nail on the head with that note about his hard contact index. Going all the way back to 2003, it was never below 100. He was always above league average in hard contact, sometimes well above average. And this year, for the first time, below league average in that department. And his power went away last year, really, and has really plummeted again this year. And even his expected power index this year is well below 100. So anybody who's looking for Chase Utley to help them out in regards to power numbers, home runs especially, I don't think that's happening. And, of course, Philadelphia, the ballpark is very friendly for home run hitters, and Dodger Stadium is not. Right. And so that, that again, is certainly not going to help uh, help Utley at all. And, of course, you've got uh, you've got San Francisco as well in, in the West, and he's got to have some games to play there. So uh, not going into friendly a friendly ballpark arrangement, I think, at all in terms of power. Now, the... Uh early analysis that I saw said that the Dodgers with uh, Enrique Hernandez, they call him Kike Hernandez, he's just been terrific playing almost every day at second in Kendrick's absence. I think he's got three home runs in August. He's batting well over 350. But they also need Hernandez in other places, especially spelling uh, Jock Peterson, who's really been struggling in center field. So there's a possibility here that Utley gets on the right side of a, of a second-base platoon. But as you said, the question is, even if he does get those uh, right-handed pitching at-bats at second base, the question really is, can he do anything with them? Right, I think that's the question. I, I think for Enrique Hernandez owners, I don't think there's anything to worry about. He is going to play. He's been playing so well. He has been really hot over the last uh, over the last month. He's at 382 with three homers and eight RBIs. So uh, right now the guy is on. Uh, the thing to to remember, I think, is we we really don't expect that to continue. He's had a 45% hit rate in the last month, and so uh, be realistic here with Enrique Hernandez. Certainly a guy to ride while he's hot, but know that he's not likely to continue at that at that level for the rest of the season. So if I had him on my roster, I'd be monitoring him monitoring him from certainly from week to week if not day to day uh, watching for a time when he returns to earth and one other note uh, jock thompson who analyzed the situation at baseball hq's playing time today column uh, anybody who had jose peraza as a speculative playing time uh, play in los angeles is probably going to be disappointed because this is certainly not a vote of confidence in him this acquisition of of uh, chase utley yeah, absolutely not. I think the Dodgers are clearly in a situation where they don't want to be playing uh, an untried ball player at this point uh, in Jose Peraza. So uh, Utley is probably going to take any time that Peraza would have gotten. Over in San Diego, the Padres uh, outfielder Melvin Upton has pretty much been a disaster all this year. But then uh, last week he had uh, a nice game, two home runs, five RBIs against Atlanta. So take that with a grain of salt. Jock Thompson again covering the National League West and playing time today. And maybe the question about Melvin Upton is, is this a resurgence or is it a fluke like the uh, blind squirrel finding the nut? Yeah, it's, it's a fluke. And, uh, you know, it's, again, it's one of those things where you've got a guy who's got some, some skills, uh, and and it has a good uh, a good uh, big league pedigree behind him. I mean, you know, Melvin Upton has uh, uh, has been decent in, in his career, uh, and and is on a kind of a hot streak. But you really don't expect it to continue. If you the place where you see that hot streak uh, happening is in his last month, a thirty seven percent hit rate. Uh, that's going to come back down to earth. Still not making great contact, a sixty eight percent contact rate in the last month. So a lot of swing and miss going on with Upton. And it, once that contact rate comes down to earth, what we're projecting is the 216 batting average the rest of the way. So again, a guy that's uh, right him right now if he's uh, if he's uh, in the groove and, and hitting well. But uh, I would be very cautious about playing Melvin Upton 
for very long in my lineup because the bottom could fall out at any minute. Of course, the Padres also traded outfielder Will Venable to Texas, which makes it look like they think Upton can get some playing time, but they also called up Travis Jankowski. He's a minor league center fielder who's been uh, really good in double-A uh, AA and triple-A this season. Yeah, he has. And that's, you know, that's where, if there's a playing time gain, that's where it's going to go is to Travis Jankowski. So uh, certainly a guy, a guy perhaps to look at. Our expectations on Jankowski at this point are not high. Uh, projected 95 at-bats, no home runs, 208 batting average, but some speed, seven stolen bases, and and uh, that might be worth something down the stretch uh, if you can can hang on to that low batting average for about 100 at-bats. The uh, thing that caught my eye in the write-up about Travis Jankowski, 32 stolen bases in the minor leagues in 43 tries, so somebody in the organization thinks he should be running. It might be interesting if the stolen base category in your league is pretty tight. Uh, other than that, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think anybody should be super confident about Melvin Upton getting a lot of at-bats and doing a lot with them. And finally, Nick, in Colorado, right-handed reliever John Axford. We've talked about John Axford, it seems like, every other week so far this year. He was the closer, then he was taken out of the closer role, and now he's back in the closer role. Uh, Rob Carroll covered the story for BaseballHQ.com's Playing Time Today column. What is the story with John Axford? Well, you know, it's one of those things where, where at this point, uh, Colorado is out of it, and they don't know exactly who they ought to have closing for them, and uh, it probably is, is, is not John Axford if you, if you look ahead to next season. But uh, uh, right now, John Axford is the closer. He's got to get some closing chances between now and the end of the year. Uh, so if your if your saves category is tight, we're projecting six saves for Ackford for the remainder of the season. Uh, not such a nice ERA at 5.14 and a 1.57 WHIP. So as long as you've got uh, some good cushion in those categories, and of course he won't pitch a lot of innings, so that that uh, that minimizes his impact in terms of that the WHIP and the ERA categories. But possibility about six saves for the rest of the season for John Axford. So as long as you can close a blind eye to the uh, the disasters that are going to to follow him. Could, could help a bit in the save category. Of course, we have to keep in mind that Colorado only has, I think, 25 saves as a team, which is the third lowest in Major League Baseball. So if you, you have to first anticipate that they get a slightly above pace number of save opportunities, and then second, that Axford can convert most of them before you give him credit for even those uh, six saves. But if you think he can do it, and basically we've always believed that he who has the role has the advantage, and right now Walt Weiss says Axford his his man in the ninth inning, I guess we have to take that for what it's worth. Probably so. And if you picked up Tom Conley and the, the idea that he was going to be the savior for the Rockies, clearly that's not it. Uh, and uh, his, uh, he's out of that ninth inning role and is not going to uh, probably get a shot at it again. Yeah, Tommy Canely this year, the kind of the poster boy for the worst kind of closer. He converted two chances of saves out of three, but uh, his last three appearances, two innings, seven hits, nine earned runs. So those are the kind of saves you really can't afford to add to your team. Very definitely. Thanks a million, Nick. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you again next week. All right. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com and is our man here on the National League beat at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and welcome back the BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis. It's Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, PD. Good to be here. Lots of news to cover in the American League, and we're going to start in Texas. Derek Holland is returning to the Rangers from the DL. Uh, just like 2014, he missed almost all the season with a strained shoulder, but his return versus Seattle was actually not too bad. Velocity around 92, lots of first-pitch strikes, and six strikeouts, no walks. That That's pretty good. He got a win. Rod Truesdell looked at this. You looked at this. So what's the 
what's the uh, likelihood of success for Derek Holland for the rest of the season? Yeah, you know, that's still a tough call. I, I was a little skeptical in uh, a Playing Time Tomorrow piece uh, I wrote a few uh, weeks ago, but it was mostly about his uh, his stamina. He wasn't pitching many innings in the minors. He was going two, three innings. This was his longest stint uh, since coming off injury, and, and like you said, he did real well. I mean, Seattle isn't one of the, the AL's offensive powerhouses. Um, if you need to speculate on pitching, um, I would speculate on Holland. He uh, he did really well coming back last year after missing most of the season. I think he posted a sub-3 ERA in five starts. Um, he's been an effective pitcher throughout his career, and Texas has a pretty good offense. So, uh, so why not take a flyer here? The other thing he's been throughout most of his career is really badly injury-prone. Are you at all concerned that he's going to get two or three starts in and then have to shut it down yet again? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, this was a strained shoulders, a shoulder, and shoulders aren't anything to mess with. Uh, um, my big concern is also that he's going to be erratic. I think he's going to be up and down. It'll be interesting to see he bounces back after this uh, six-plus inning start he's just completed. Now, uh, Derek Holland steps into the Texas rotation. Who steps out? Well, he's not really replacing anyone noteworthy. I mean, you have Nick Martinez, who had a surprisingly good first half, but as we all know, he'd outpitched his peripherals, and he's been awful for a while now. Uh, Chichi Gonzalez has had a few moments, but he too has been hit around lately. Uh, with with Texas back in the wild card hunt, doesn't look like they're going to spend much time auditioning and developing young pitchers, at, at least for the time being. That's an interesting point, isn't it, Jock, that they did spend the first part of the year looking at a lot of options uh, for their rotation amongst their prospects and younger pitchers. And all of a sudden, uh, do you think that them being in the wild card race has caught them a little bit by surprise? Yeah, I don't know. I think they they were hedging their bets all along because the front office was on again, off again, in on Cole Hamels. Um, and then they decided, well, let's let's pick him up. We, 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 we're we going to have him for three years anyway. Um, there's so much parity in baseball that uh, a, a lot of these teams hanging around the periphery, it's 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 really tough. To, it, it was really tough in, in June and July to determine whether they were going to be competitors or not. And, of course, uh, Houston has faded, the Angels have faded, and now Texas is right back in it. The Rangers uh, doubled down a little bit. They made a trade acquisition of Will Venable, the outfielder from San Diego. A, a little bit of an underrated player, in my view, uh, and a pretty good pickup for the Rangers with Josh Hamilton once again uh, leaving the field for the DL. Is Venable worth a pickup in Texas? Yeah, I think in deeper leagues he might be. I mean, he's he's never hit more than, than 260, but he's always provided a little speed and at times a little pop. Uh, he was putting up... Uh, good not great comeback numbers in San Diego before this trade again hitting around 260 uh, in about 270 at bats but he had 11 stolen bases six home runs almost completely against left-handed pitchers which is what his role is going to be with the Rangers and I wouldn't be surprised to see his power jump a little in Arlington uh, now in August and September in the warm weather I I think the problem Venable has is what Texas does with Hamilton, Josh Hamilton, after he comes off the DL. Do they do they try to play him or not? If they do, that'll cut into his playing time. And of course, a lot will depend on when Hamilton comes off the DL and how well Venable is doing at the time, as you say. Uh, in Cleveland, Jason Kipnis was on the DL with a sore shoulder. He has returned, I think, a little quicker than a lot of us expected he would, because we were uh, talking about this a few weeks ago, and we were told he'd been playing with this shoulder for such a long time that it, we thought maybe it would take uh, more than it ended up taking to recover. So what do you think we can expect from Jason Kipnis for the balance of the season? And what are the lineup ramifications? 
Yeah, Kipnis is interesting. He went three for four in his first came back, so he's come back hitting. But Tom Kephart pointed out in his uh, playing time today, Kipnis is working with a 38% hit rate for the season, and he hasn't hit for much power all year. So that that uncharacteristically high 325 batting average isn't likely uh, isn't likely to hold. And and going back to our earlier conversation. I'm wondering a little bit if Cleveland won't sit in more a, a little more often down the stretch, given his injury and the fact that they're just playing out the uh, the string. Who's going to be your playing time loser? Well, Jose Ramirez had been playing second base in place of Kipnis, uh, um, but Ramirez uh, ha- has now made two consecutive starts in, in left field through Thursday, so it sounds like Cleveland may try to move him around as a utility. Uh, Ramirez, 90% contact, uh, 12% uh, walk rate in August through 67 at-bats, which are, are pretty good numbers, but he doesn't have a lot of power. Really, uh, his value is going to depend on his hit rate and his running game. Maybe Cleveland's going to try to to send him a green light him on the base base pass more often to get some some more offense but uh, he's kind of a speculative name going forward a couple of weeks ago we were surprised that uh, byron buxton of the twins was activated from the dl straight to triple a rather than coming back to the twins but aaron hicks has gone on the dl with a hamstring problem and byron buxton is back in center field for minnesota what do you think we can expect from buxton this for what is his uh, second time around for him Gosh, I don't know. Maybe another DL stint. <laughs> Who knows? I think I think injuries, sadly enough, are, are a legitimate concern for Buxton. Um, he struggled in his limited major league exposure to date, uh, while offering a, a, an occasional flash of his skills. If you look at his four percent walk rate and sixty-three percent contact during his small sample size, which I think is uh, is what now uh, 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 forty-eight at bats, fifty at bats. We can't assume he's going to contribute a lot down the stretch, and given that he's going to get playing time, he could actually hurt you with his batting average. That said, there is some upside here, particularly on the base pass, if, if for some reason the light suddenly goes on, and as, as uh, I mentioned before, he stays healthy. The staying healthy part is certainly a concern. I wonder if he's going to stop sliding hands first into the bases. That's what did him in this most recent time. The Twins are also having issues at the back end of their bullpen. Glenn Perkins has some kind of problem with his neck. At last report, he was going for an MRI and could be going right from the MRI to the DL. So what is plan B for the Twins in their bullpen? Well, Twins manager Paul Molitor says that it's Kevin Jepsen who does have a 2.74 ERA and a 51% ground ball rate through 49 innings this season. But Jepsen's walks are way up again. He's always been volatile like that. He's not throwing first pitch strikes. And his 4.14 expected ERA really doesn't scream closer. Uh, He could pick up uh, a handful of saves down the stretch. Uh, Again, we're talking about six weeks here. But if you're looking for a longer-term speculation in a keeper league, the guy I kind of like here is Trevor May, who's been really good in the uh, in the bullpen since he's moved there. 2.45 ERA in 15 innings with 15 strikeouts and just two walks. Again, this is just a longer-term speculation. Jepson is the veteran, and managers seem to defer to the vets most of the time, or at least getting the first call. So um, that's where Minnesota stands, at least right now. Down in your neck of the woods, Jock, Matt Shoemaker has been displaced and sent to AAA. He's out of the rotation in Los Angeles. Who draws in? What's the impact there? Well, Shoemaker has struggled all season keeping what was once an excellent uh, split-fingered pitch, or at least last year it was. Uh, keeping that one down in the zone, and he's and that's been responsible for a lot of his problems in 2015. Now it seemed that he'd turn his season around in uh, in July, but then he was just brutalized in his last two August starts during a stretch where the pen was just 
being heavily taxed by all the Angels starting pitchers. So they optioned him back to AAA for a couple of starts to see if he could work on some things. My guess that unless, unless Nick Tropiano is an improvement, and he, and he certainly wasn't last night against the White Sox, Shoemaker's going to get a few more starts in September. And they've also recalled a rookie infielder, Caleb Cowart. What's going on with that situation? Well, uh, this promotion I thought was a bit of a Hail Mary based, uh, based on his performance at Salt Lake City. Uh, but the fact was that uh, Connor Gillespie, the third baseman in place of Dave DeVries, not only wasn't hitting, but he wasn't very good defensively. Um, so far, Cowart has looked overmatched at the, at match at the plate. He's 0 for 10 with four strikeouts, but he really has looked terrific with the glove. Uh, David Fries is going to get his job back whenever he returns, which could be before September. We have cowered at about 35% playing time for the rest of the year, and, and that probably is going to come down soon. In Detroit, the Tigers are also having pitching issues. They've put Annabelle Sanchez on the deal with a rotator cuff problem. He's probably finished for the year. They recently acquired Daniel Norris from Toronto in the David Price deal. He's got an oblique strain and is on the DL. Detroit I think has aspirations to make the playoffs. They're not that far out of the second wild card, but this is definitely a problem for them. What are they going to do? Yeah, I'm not sure about those playoff aspirations given uh, uh, the the trade of David Price, but uh, stranger things have happened. Uh, it actually sounds like Sanchez might be done for the season, while Norris might have a chance to return. Um, rookie Matt Boyd could stay in the rotation, even with a 7-plus ERA over five starts to date. Uh, he's very homer-prone, despite having good command. So he's going to be a fantasy risk for the rest of the season until he can manage that. Uh, they've, they've acquired uh, veteran Randy Wolf to come in and eat some innings, but Wolf hasn't been particularly effective now for a while, and he should be avoided. Uh, the, the most interesting of, of their names, I think, is a guy named Michael Fulmer, who's a rookie, still at AA. He was acquired from the Mets in the Cespedes deal. But his call-up is very speculative for now, just like everything else with these Detroit moves. Uh, uh, Detroit's rotation probably bears watching. But it doesn't sound like there's much to recommend uh, in the Detroit rotation that's not already on fantasy rosters. No, you're right, and it's, and it's all speculative. Anytime you call up a, a rookie in August, you don't know how well he's going to do. And finally, Jock, following a truly horrendous season in Oakland and a really awful second half, first baseman Ike Davis was placed on the DL with what was called a strained left hip. Rod Truesdell noted this in playing time today. You had written about Davis and the Oakland first base situation a few days before. What are you seeing going on here for Oakland? Yeah, Davis had lost a ton of playing time in the previous week, and I wrote about that. This was before the hip injury was announced, and it uh, it makes me wonder how serious the hip injury is or whether it was something to put him on the DL. He'd hit three home runs all season. Uh, he was batting uh, 160-something in the second half, and he hadn't hit a home run yet. Um, he'd been replaced by uh, Mark, Mark Canna. I think that's the correct pronunciation of it. Uh, um, and Ken is an interesting guy. He was labeled as a lefty killer uh, uh, entering the season. Um, but if you look at his numbers this year, um, his, his numbers against right-handed pitching are, are way better than his numbers against left-handed pitching. As a right-handed hitter, he's, I think he's hit nine homers against right-handers, no homers against lefties, and he's actually holding his own. If you're looking for a first baseman down the stretch, uh, I'd definitely take a flyer on Canna because he's, he's going to get the time. All right, Jock, a very comprehensive report this week, lots to talk about, and we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and do this analysis and share it with us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Okay, PD, talk to you next week. Next week it is. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and a speculator columnist at the site, 
And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature guest expert interview, Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and from uh, FantasyAlarm.com, coming up next here at Baseball HQ Radio. I'd like to do something called baseball and football because these two things are such a part of our lives, these two activities, and yet they're so different. The objects of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Glenn Colton, the host of Colton and the Wolfman on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio and a feature blogger at FantasyAlarm.com. Glenn, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. It's been a while. It has been too long, Patrick. A pleasure as always. I always start by asking how your fantasy teams are doing. Well, it's been a, a mixed bag, you know, uh... Rick Wolf, the Wolfman, and I play, and uh, the First Lady of uh, Fantasy, Stacey Stern, playing a bunch of expert leagues against the best of the best. And we're doing a lot better in our National League uh, team than our American League teams. Uh, the NL Labor League has four teams all vying for the top spot. We're one of those and pretty excited about that. And in the American League, we've been let down by a couple of guys that are on almost all our teams, so it hasn't been as good a year as last year's Tout AL Championship was. Who are the t- players that you were relying on so heavily? Robinson Cano and Carlos Santana. I was sure that, you know, at scarce position, second base, and a guy who plays, you know, third base and is flexible at first in Santana, uh, that they would have solid years, give you batting average from Cano, on-base percentage, and home runs from, from Santana, and they really haven't uh, performed anywhere near their price tag this year. I find it interesting that you said that they affected multiple teams that you have because it raises an interesting question about bet hedging. It's more more commonly thought about in uh, in daily gaming, but uh, for guys who have season length uh, leagues, multiple leagues that they play in, there's two approaches. You can say, "I really like Robinson Cano. I really like uh, Carlos Santana. I'm going to have them on as many teams as I can." And the flip side of that is, I want to spread my risk by having those two guys on this team and no other. What made you decide to uh, to go all in on these two guys to the extent that they made up a core of multiple teams? Well, you know, we mostly play in auctions, Patrick. And when we budget for an auction, we, we have certain uh, budget slots where we want to roster one of two, one of five, one of seven players, depending on what it is, at a position. Um, and when the auction comes around, if we can get a good value, we're going to get them whether we own Cano to other places or we don't, because especially at the scarce positions, if you pass on a Cano, let's say, just because uh, you have them in another expert league, you may end up way overpaying for someone, let's say, like a Jason Kipnis. So it really is a, a set of draft dynamics. And if the price went too high on those guys that we really liked, we'd let them go. You're also active in the daily game. Uh, uh, how's that going for you? You know, I'm 
starting to work it out. It is, look, there are some really, truly terrific daily players. And, you know, at Fantasy Alarm, Jeff Mance and Ted Schuster have had incredible success. And what they've done is offer a product called uh, DFS Playbook Pro, where they'll actually give you uh, the optimal lineups to play. Now, I don't just, it's a great, you know, Fantasy Alarm product. I don't just play the actual lineups they play, but I look at who they're going to play and why and then make changes from there based on a number of factors, including um, something that I think is overlooked in the daily game, which is the batter versus pitcher history. Some guys, it's a human game still, and some guys just hit some pitchers very well. And when you see, you know, tremendous success, um, jump on it. That's a bone of contention among fantasy daily players and fantasy daily analysts, this whole idea of the batter versus pitcher metrics or, or uh, success rates. And I wonder, you seem to have come down on the side that it does matter. How big of a sample do you have to look at before you think to yourself, this is something I'm willing to put a little money on? Yeah, you know, I want to see a, a real sample. I'm, uh, somebody's two for five, so they're 400. That doesn't move me very much. You know, somebody's 14 for 40. That moves me a little bit more. And the other thing you have to temper it with is who are you looking at? Are you looking at a guy, just make up a name, Carlos Beltran, who is, you know, at 38. He's hot right now, but he's not the player he was a decade ago when he might have built up some of these stats against the pitcher. So you have to, you know, take the raw stat and then look behind the numbers. Yeah, that's an interesting point. It's kind of a uh, kind of a dichotomy. You want to have enough uh, at bats between a batter and a pitcher to determine that you have a good sample. But the more at bats you have, the likelier it is that many of them are from a long time ago when the pitcher was a different pitcher and the batter was a different batter. So it's a it's an interesting balancing act for sure. Uh, Glenn, what's the most surprising or interesting thing you think that has happened this year, either in baseball or fantasy baseball or where the twain meet? You know, I think it's the, the, the failure of the reliable, a lot of reliable hitters. Guys like Robinson Cano, like Carlos Santana and others, where you were pretty sure you had, you know, money in the bank. Even a Jacoby Ellsbury, everyone knew, all right, he might miss 100 at-bats because he's injury-prone, but nobody expected, you know, uh, a weak production uh, for a substantial period of time for a guy in his prime. So one of the things that I'm very surprised by is players in their prime with good track records underproducing. And that leads me to ask, do you think that's something that's going to continue? Have you noticed any trends or developments you think are becoming the new baseline for future seasons? Well, I, it, it's hard to say. I certainly think that the era of the pitcher continues to move forward and that pitching is better than it was uh, a few years ago and the, you know, the solid offensive stat, you know, is, is lower and lower than it used to be. But I think this year has just been a little bit fluky when you combine guys who stayed healthy, like Cano and Santana, just because I'm picking on them, uh, and didn't hit, and then guys getting hurt, Miguel Cabrera, Giancarlo Stanton, etc. you end up with a dearth of offense. And so looking ahead to, say, 2016, are you – concerned about the pitcher-hitter balance to the extent that you might alter your approach from past years to being t- towards being more willing to accept uh, what used to be called pitcher risk and is now look, being looked at as pitcher certainty? Yeah, no, I actually don't think so. I think it goes the other way. It's much like, um, you know, in fantasy football, quarterbacks are great, but there are so many of them. Now there's a lot of pitchers, so you don't need to roster 
um, you know, Clayton Kershaw or Chris Sale to be able to put together a roster that has really good pitchers on it. So scarcity for, for you know, the Colton and the Wolfman team has always ruled the day, and hitters becoming more scarce just means we're going to keep uh, making sure we do our best. Uh, we'll get some wrong, but we'll do our best to get the scarce hitters and fill that in. Well, then let me ask you this. If, if we were to have a 2016 Mixed League Fantasy Baseball draft tomorrow, that is, we draft tomorrow, but we're playing for next year, and uh, you had first pick overall, who do you think you would take? I'm going to go chalk here, Patrick, and that's Mike Trout. I mean, in his prime, still getting better, and here's a guy who's on pace for you know over 40 home runs, over 100 RBIs, and uh, 390-plus OBP, and also throws in some steals and is durable. He's, he's number one for sure. I've uh, heard people say Paul Goldschmidt, who's going to have probably three times the steals or maybe two and a half times the steals of Mike Trout and a better on-base percentage, might be, a, might be a surprise pick in a lot of drafts. What do you think about Paul Goldschmidt or Bryce Harper? Well, I mean, Harper has been tremendous, and he's a young player. I still am a little nervous about a guy who hasn't stayed healthy throughout a whole year more than, you know, I'm not going to do it this year, but more than once. Um, and as far as Goldschmidt is concerned, uh, you know, I still think that the upside of Trout is higher than the upside of Goldschmidt. So I don't know that Goldschmidt could get 25% better than he is now. I actually think Trout could. Yeah, I, I last time I checked the baseball HQ valuations, I think Goldschmidt was the number one guy in mixed leagues on a dollar value basis, but those other guys are all in there as well. How about Andrew McCutcheon's slow year? Do you think it might portend a buying opportunity next year? You know, I think it could, but I think you have to be very, very careful when it comes to Kutch because I think the steals are going to continue to diminish there, and he's never been a guy who's been a 35-40 home run guy. His value has been in, you could lock in 20 or 25 steals, 20 or 25 homers every year. If the steals start to go down, he's still a very good player, but he's not, you know, a top five player. And can you see any pitchers going in the first round, uh, assuming some of your hitters went uh, early? There's always someone who thinks that Kershaw is so dominant that he's worthy of a first round pick. Um, I don't think that works. I think it hurts your, your hitting too much. Uh, we tried it, actually, Nate Rabbits and I, in the NFBC this year, uh, taking Kershaw number seven overall, which everyone said was a bargain. But it, it just hamstrung the offense, frankly, so badly that we're not going to do it. But I think somebody in every league will think that they're uh, you know, zigging when everyone else is zagging and think it's the right thing to do. And, of course, this year you'd have been better off with uh, uh, several other pitchers than Kershaw taking them in the first round. Max Scherzer's having a really good year. Uh, and there, there are a few guys out there who are actually having better dollar value years than, than Kershaw is, but that's also the same you could say about hitting as well. It's all, that's what makes the game fun, after all. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Glenn Colton from Sirius XM Fantasy Radio, FantasyAlarm.com. And, uh, Glenn, a regular feature of your blog at FantasyAlarm.com is the week that was, you call it. It's a review of important player performance stories from fantasy baseball in the previous week. Uh, in last week's blog, you were really enthusiastic about Brewers starter Jimmy Nelson. What caught your eye about Nelson? And you're not alone. Well, you know, it's a couple of things. Taking a look at last year, we always look for guys whose performance should have been better, right? So last year, you're looking at a guy like Nelson who throws, you know, consistently over 93. And that doesn't mean... He throws 93. It means he's averaging on a fastball 93, often much higher. But he had an elevated BABIP over 350 and a strand percentage 
you know, at 66, which is low, means you got a little bit unlucky. And when you take all that together with a guy whose ground ball percentage is around 50, swinging strike percentage over 10, there was every reason to think he was going to be a much better pitcher in 2015. And indeed, over the last 30 days, he's been unbelievable. 199 ERA over the last 30 days, and he's the guy I want to own the rest of the way and for next year. At BaseballHQ.com, we're projecting that he's going to finish up being about a 12 or $13 pitcher, which would be a nice profit for most people, I'm sure. I, I really like the fact that he keeps the ball from flying over the fence in, the, in his three years in the big leagues, albeit 2013 wasn't um, a very long stretch, but he has yet to allow more than one home run per nine innings, which is really good. And uh, that's why it makes that strand rate seem a little odd, because usually the culprit is too many home runs getting those base runners in. I wonder if he's having trouble pitching from the stretch. Yeah, I actually haven't looked at that. It's an excellent point, but um, typically young pitchers will have some struggle with that and start to get over that. If I had a guess, and I haven't run the numbers, it'd be interesting for fantasy owners to check that out if they're in a pennant race. You know, look at how he has been since the All-Star break, and I venture to guess he's actually done better out of the stretch, which has accounted for another jump-up. And you're absolutely right about the value. He cost us $5 in labor and L, and is a big reason we are in contention. In that same column, you had a note for daily fantasy players and for people streaming players in uh, in their seasonal leagues that they need to be aware that David Murphy of the Angels is doing a lot right. What is it that David Murphy's doing right? Well, you know, the, the beauty of daily is you can look for these guys that only play or only perform against a certain you know pitcher. So David Murphy... Uh, is a guy who is, you know hits left-handed and hits righties. And you take a look at someone who has seven home runs in August, and you're not that excited. But when you take a look and say he's got seven homers in 240 at-bats and is hitting 290 against righties, you see someone who is really going to be undervalued when he's in the lineup, especially when he's in the lineup you know, hitting somewhere between the three and the six spot. And then, you know, he was in Cleveland with the Ryan Rayburns and the cold Carlos Santanas and the injured Jan Gomes. And now all of a sudden, he's in a lineup with Mike Trout and Albert Pujols and Cole Calhoun. And a lot of the daily sites haven't baked that increase into Murphy's value when he's in the lineup yet. It's an interesting facet of daily fantasy is this whole uh, kind of an arbitrage play that you're looking for, guys whose salaries might be out of whack with their potential because the site has not quite caught up with the change in circumstance. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. You have to look for where the programs that the daily sites are using to value players haven't caught up with the soft information that are available from, you know, great sites like Fantasy Alarm and Baseball HQ. In my American League League, I recently traded for Corey Kluber, and based on your blog, I think I done good. Uh, Can you tell our listeners why Corey Kluber makes a good uh, target even for the short run here? Oh, boy, you done darn good, Patrick. I mean... Corey Kluber really, he, for the second year in a row, is getting better as the season goes on. And this is a guy who was phenomenal last year, um, and he's even been better in a lot of ways this year. The swinging strike percentage is up. He's striking out over one per inning. And even in a game where he wasn't that good, like Wednesday night uh, on the 19th, he still struck out nine and walked one. You can write him in the lineup every single day, and uh, every single start, and know you're going to get some value, if not a great start. I think he's one of the best pitchers in baseball without question. 
The thing that I noticed about Corey Kluber this year is uh, April, he had, a, he had a really bad April. He got off to a slow start at, I think, an ERA around four and a quarter and a whip around one and a quarter, which was not what people were expecting. His strikeout rate was down a little. Then in May, he looked like uh, the Corey Kluber of old, ERA of under three, a whip right around one. Then in June, right back to April, a, a four ERA, 120 whip. Then in July, back down to under three and under one. And uh, so far this month in August, uh, 394, which is not great, and a 0.78 whip. So there's a little bit of strand rate uh, action going there. How big of a practitioner are you of these alternating year, alternating month type of stats that we see? Yeah, I'm not too big a believer in any of that stuff. And if you get behind the numbers uh, and you take a look at, for example, um, instead of ERA with with Kluber, the XFIP, right, which... um, fielding independent pitching, and then you normalize for the ballpark effect, you've got a guy who's monthly XFIP 2792, 377, which is an outlier, 301, 332, 272. I'm sorry, uh, you know, 272 for the whole first half. So you don't see that much a variation. So there's some luck factors in the short term. And, you know, month by month, his strikeout percentage was, other than 22.6 in June, was over 25 every month. So I think there's just a little bit of bad luck there in the very short sample sizes. But when you draft Corey Kluber for a whole year, for the second year in a row, you're very happy you did. That's an excellent point about the short sample sizes. The The influence of luck is is pretty profound, even over an entire season. But when you zoom in on a four-week period, and let's be honest, we call, it a, we call it the month of May, but it's just four weeks that we've chosen at random and decided to call the month of May. But if you look through it on a rolling four-week four, four basis, I, I think those, those luck factors tend to even out a lot more than people realize. And for that reason, any time a guy is having a short run experience of bad luck might be the time to pounce on a good player and get him uh, at a at a discount because his owner's nervous or frustrated with that short run experience oh i i think that's absolutely right and remember when you're talking about a month for a pitcher you know you're talking somewhere between four and six starts right um it's not like a hitter where you're talking about a hundred at bats so the effects i think are far more pronounced yeah, and, and uh, something else that, that doesn't get fully recognized by a lot of fantasy players is who are the opponents? You know, I mean, if you happen to have a, a pitcher who has four or five starts in a row against the Philadelphias and Atlantas of the world and, and puts up a real nice ERA and a real nice whip and picks up some strikeouts, you think, look at me, I'm great, I have this great pitcher. But if the, uh, the same pitcher happens to be going up against, you know, the Yankees or the Cardinals or Toronto, certainly, then all of a sudden those numbers don't look so good. The guy's pitching exactly the same, but there are external circumstances. And anytime you're making a decision about what to do on a roster based on short runs, you've got to look at the opposition. Uh, look, I, I think that's an excellent, excellent point. And when you look at Corey Kluber, you know, some of the bad outings, if you will, um, at the beginning of the year, you know, at U.S. Cellular, which is a terrible place uh, to pitch against the red-hot uh, Kansas City Royals twice. Um, you know, you can sort of see these things for what they are and then normalize and say, all right, well, we can allow for a couple of bad outings. Is this really a trend? And the answer with Kluber wasn't the bad outings were certainly not a trend. In this week's uh, week that was column, you started with a kind of a trumpet fanfare for the belated arrival of Jackie Bradley Jr. in Boston. What's the story with Jackie Bradley Jr.? You know, it, it's an object lesson with the, you know, just wealth of information out there. Uh, people 
know the rookies, know the double-A players, even know the high-A players, and they're so excited when these guys like Jackie Bradley make the major leagues at 22 or 23 years of age, and they don't have the patience to say, all right, this guy's going to struggle at the beginning. You know, not, not everyone's Mike Trout. In fact, no one's Mike Trout. So Jackie Bradley Jr. was, I think, unfairly dubbed a guy who was uh, not going to make it in the major leagues. And at 25, he went back to Pawtucket and had a very you know, strong uh, campaign there, hitting 305 with a 382 on base percentage. And at 25, he's now back in the major leagues. There's less pressure because Boston is out of it. And he's showing that he can actually hit and play in this league. And when you take into effect he's a great fielder, this is a guy who's going to be in the lineup every day in 20, the rest of 2015 and 2016, and he still, I think, can be had at a substantial profit. It's an excellent point, the idea of defense. I've talked about it here on Baseball HQ Radio and, and in my columns at BaseballHQ.com. And other, uh, especially our prospect analysts, will point out, a guy who has a good glove tends to get a longer rope before the manager finally says, I just can't bear this poor offensive production. And therefore, uh, a guy with a weak glove just has less opportunities. And Jackie Bradley can play, and that's going to keep him in the lineup. And uh, players I love, Glenn, are prospects who flopped, at age 21, 22, as you say, because baseball is hard. And, you know, we don't often give enough credit for the fact that when you're 22 years old and you step up against Chris Sale or, you're, you know, you come to bat and there's Clayton Kershaw staring at you, it's hard. And that it's we shouldn't be surprised when a guy doesn't do well at age 21 or 22, goes back, learns his craft, figures things out, comes back at age 24 or 25. He's a different player at that point. He has more experience, more maturity, more Oh, self-awareness and, and good self-expectations. And that's when you need to get on these guys uh, is when the, they come back for that second time in their mid-20s rather than their early 20s. I think that's absolutely right, Patrick. I mean, people forget, it, whether it be real baseball management, fantasy baseball management, they forget these are human beings who are, you know, away from home, who are learning to live on their own, who, you know, have much greater weight on them than the... 21-year-old kid who gets out of college and is, you know, doing his first or her first job uh, where they're, you know, not expected to perform in the public light. So uh, it's not really surprising, as you say, maturity, that that these kids grow up and at 24, 25, 26, they're much better and much different players. As well, to, to continue your analogy, we don't take a kid fresh out of law school and throw him in front of the Supreme Court on his, basically on his first go. You know, it's a, it's a little bit of clerking and it's a little bit of a lower level responsibility in a firm and you work your way up until you're doing the big cases and, and baseball is pretty much the same way, except we do ask these guys to do the equivalent of arguing a, a case in front of the Supreme Court on their first day on the job. Yeah, that's a great analogy. In fact, I uh, plan to borrow it, uh, if you will allow me to, uh, when we hit the airwaves next week. One other thing about about this this idea of what we expect of young athletes, do you think it's colored to any extent by what we see in uh, pro football and pro basketball, where it is much more um, frequent that a player will come up fresh out of school especially in basketball, and be able to dominate the league and be able to be a starter, a very productive player, even at 18, 19, 20 years old, or in the case of the NFL, if he comes out after college, he's, what, 21, 22. 
but these players, first-round draft picks, very high-level draft picks, are often able to star right out of the gate in a way that is extremely rare in baseball. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the the analogy I would give is it's one thing to play, you know, basketball or football, which are, of course, tough sports, but you pretty rarely see a quarterback master all the intricacies of the NFL in their first year. Um, even the great ones, uh, you know, aren't terrific at the being the John Elways and the, the Joe Montanas were, were backups when they, and Dan Marino uh, were all backups in their first year, at least for parts of it. Troy, Troy Aikman got thrown to the Wolves and, you know, really wasn't good for a few years. But these guys were all in the Hall of Fame. And that's sort of an analogy to baseball where there's so much to master that it's just going to take time. Plus, and I know a lot of football fans don't like to hear me say it, baseball's harder, especially uh, especially being an offensive player trying to swing a bat against pitchers. I think you're likelier to see a very successful young pitcher than you are to see a very successful young hitter because pitching's a more natural thing and you are in much more in control of the situation because the ball's in your hand to start the play, whereas if you're hitting, you're always reacting, and sometimes you're reacting against guys who are really good at what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, although, you know, what the pitchers will tell you is when they make a mistake at AAA, they can get away with it. They make a mistake up in the zone in the major leagues, uh, they're craning their neck to see how far the ball flew. Um, you know, the other thing about it sort of being harder, I'm not so sure baseball is harder to play than football, for example, but I think that the mistakes are so, you know, microscopically analyzed. So you're a hitter, it's just you with the piece of wood in your hand. You know, unless you drop a pass in football or throw an interception, your mistake isn't really that, um, you know, carefully analyzed. If you ran the wrong route, 90% of the people don't know it. You know, if you use the wrong technique to set a block, most people don't know it. Whereas you just can't miss the mistakes in baseball. And also, uh, a lot of what goes on in football and in basketball is the result of a very intricate ballet amongst all your teammates as opposed to the hitter-pitcher confrontation, which is very stark and very one-on-one. It's more like prize fighting than it is like football in that respect, in that if you're a, a quarterback, uh, think of uh, uh, Luck in, in Indianapolis, uh, he steps into a situation, the team was not that good, he didn't look that good, gradually the team gets better, all of a sudden he starts looking really good, and contrast that with the experience of guys like Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady going into pretty excellent situations with excellent coaching, fine front offices, and every time the, the, uh, a play gets underway on the field, if you throw an interception, there's a lot of people announcing the games and so forth will say, well, the cause of that interception was this guy missed a block, this guy missed his route, this guy didn't do the right read. Because everybody recognizes there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in a football play, and any one guy doing his job incorrectly can cause the play to have a bad outcome that looks like the fault of somebody else. I think that is absolutely right. I can't add to it because it's right on. You also mentioned some rookie pitchers, speaking of them, who have some nice strikeout rates in your column at FantasyAlarm.com. And in particular, you cited Luis Severino, the new Yankee starter. Tell us more about him. He's a guy who's had a lot of fanfare here in New York, but he's throwing almost average 96, which is just nasty. And the thing that real, you know, and he's striking out more guys than he did in the minor leagues, but his walk rate is down from what it was uh, in the minor leagues. And that says to me, this is a guy who throws hard, getting his strikeouts, but is not panicking in the show in a pennant race, going up against good 
top-flight major league teams, not just major league hitters, but top-flight major league hitters, and he is keeping his composure. He's not walking batters, and he's still striking them out. I think this guy is here to stay. Uh, Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter says that uh, sometimes it can be deceiving when these young pitchers come up from the minors and improve their walk rates, and he argues that it's because the umpires call the strike zone differently in the minors than they do in the majors, and strike zones are bigger in the major leagues for a variety of reasons. So to be cautious about guys who seem to improve their walk rates because they're going to walk less, the, the walks are going to be decreased for everybody when they make that transition. Well, I try not to argue with Joe Sheehan, who's just absolutely brilliant baseball and you know analyst. Uh, my only point here was not so much that the walk rate was down; it's that it didn't jump to show um, you know nerves and a lack of ability to handle the pressure in the big leagues. That's really the key with Severino so far. Yeah, it's an excellent point because uh, the temptation for a young pitcher is to try to be too fine, and uh, because they're young and new, they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt as umpires have been proven to give to the established pitchers. You also mentioned John Lamb, who was a top Kansas City prospect, uh, Tommy John, and then got traded to the Reds in the Cueto deal. He had some mixed results in his first start, but you but you like John Lamb for the strikeouts. I do. One of the things that really interests me about Lamb is he had Tommy John in 2011 and did, didn't come back with the kind of velocity he had before that. But despite lesser velocity, he still got a strikeout rate, uh, you know, basically a K per nine in, in 2014 and 2015 in the minors. And when a pitcher can learn to pitch um, without, you know, a young pitcher having to rely just on blowing it by people and still maintain that strikeout level, I think you've got a guy who knows how to pitch. Um, and he's going to get his opportunity to do so with, you know, a Cincinnati club who is, uh, you know, out of it this year. Another young pitcher you liked, uh, Nick Tropiano of the Angels. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to give a shout-out here to Eno Saris over at Fangraphs, who, who, if you will, turned me on to Tropiano. And, you know, there's nothing that stands out about him like it did about Severino throwing almost 96 on average. But you get behind the numbers a little bit, you get a guy who's got a strikeout per inning, um, you know, at every level. And... You look at the advanced metrics, even in his small sample size this year, you've got an 11% swing strike percentage, which is, you, you know, Patrick, very strong, and a 67% first pitch strike percentage, which means he's pounding the strike zone and throwing strikes. And I think when you pitch um, in a pitcher's ballpark like Anaheim, get to visit places like Seattle and Oakland that are pitcher's ballparks and have uh, guys like Trout and Pujols and, and Calhoun hitting behind you, that's a pretty good recipe for success. And the, the last uh, comment I'd like to make about your uh, column at FantasyAlarm.com the week that was, your commenter Schultz, you call him, uh, at the bottom, advises us all to look closely at John Gray of the Rockies. And that raises the question, why would anybody look at a rookie pitcher in Coors Field? Schultz is a real person, and that's his real name. <laughs> but, uh, and he makes some extra, excellent points, and I, I'm glad to have him you know, commenting, even though I make fun of him in the column sometimes. But that's one on which uh, we disagree. Unless you are in an extremely deep league or you are, you know, have to take substantial risks to get back in the race, uh, I'd steer clear of all pitchers uh, other than whoever the closer is. Right now it's Axford again in Colorado. 
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Glenn Colton from SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio and FantasyAlarm.com. And uh, Glenn, you just mentioned uh, sometimes you have to take risks to get back into a race. We're getting to the time of year when a lot of leagues have separated into the contenders and the pretenders, but also some teams that are kind of stuck in no man's land in between. So do you have any guidelines that you use in figuring out whether you have a shot at a top spot in a league or even maybe a pennant? There's no secret sauce or formula. You really need to study the, uh, the standings and really see, okay, category by category, how much can I realistically move up? How much is the person I'm chasing, how much can they realistically move down? And then see if, you're, if, if you can make that happen. And then you have to decide, well, if you can make that happen, is it by being steady and careful, or do you need to take a substantial risk? Just, you know, a simple example is, okay, my ratios are no good, so I load every two-start starter I could find to try to get all the strikeouts and wins and jump up in those columns. I mean, that may be a strategy you wouldn't do in April, but you would do in August, that type of thing. Do you project out to the end, or do you just look at where you are in the standings at the moment? Every league is so different depending on how many teams there are in it and um, what the categories are, uh, how deep the, the, the league is. You really need to have an understanding of your league. And one of the ways you can do that is go back and take a look at an average of, let's say, the last three years' standings in your league and say, you know, what won this category? What came in second in this category? Can I get there this year? Is that going to have a similar effect this year? And sort of work on a unique league-by-league basis as opposed to some generic metric. Well, assuming a category format league like traditional rotisserie 5x5, what kind of a gap would you look at in uh, in any of the categories and say, this is something I can't make up, so I'm going to have to look somewhere else? The easiest categories to look at are, are saves and steals. You should be able to easily figure out whether you can jump up in those categories because you just got a, a player back or your opponent just lost Billy Hamilton or... Um, you know, you, Ken Giles finally became the closer or something like that. So those, I think, are easy. The, the ratio categories are much more difficult, um, and I think that you have to be realistic that jumping up in ratios can be very hard. So if you're more than, you know, uh, .0, you know, five or so, or maybe .1 uh, in a WHIP or an ERA, you're going to have a hard time at this stage of the season really moving up much. That's exactly what I think, too. And you also have to be aware of the denominator that you're using versus what everybody else is. And I'll give you an example from Tout Mixed. Uh, when I look at my pitching decimals, I, I, it, it appears at first glance that I might be able to make up the difference. But because I went with an all-starter strategy, I have 13 or 1,350 innings, something like that, which means you know, I'm going to have to have nine or ten no-hitters or perfect games just to make up the one point between me and the next guy just because... I have so many innings in the denominator at this point, it's going to be very, very hard to move the ratio. No, that's a great point. You have to do the math on your own team. And a team like that, it probably makes sense to see if you can get some closers uh, and, and run, up the, run up the saves or just keep throwing the starters out there to hope to move up in the Ks and wins. Yeah, I adopted the the latter strategy. I tried to go with, uh, I traded closers. I was buried in that category anyway, so I traded my closers for strikeout pitchers, and uh, I'm hoping to move up there because, you know, you have to strike where you see the opportunity. And uh, I've played in a lot of leagues, Glenn, where guys will make trade offers to you, and, and, you know, they'll be 40 home runs behind, and they'll say, well, you trade me Miguel Cabrera because I need home runs. 
And you think, well, Miguel Cabrera's not going to hit 40 home runs between now and the end of the season. Why the hell would you want Miguel Cabrera? You should be trading your home runs away, take your one in the category, and look to gain somewhere else. So many people don't get that. I think that's absolutely right. I'll tell you another thing that we have often done, which people don't really pay attention to. If you're in a pennant race, and you're just making this up, way ahead in saves, and you want to trade a closer, and you could trade him to someone who will, with your closer, pass your competition in the closer in the save category, the minus one point for your opponent is just as good as a plus one point for you. So look for opportunities to where you can not only make your team better, but where by virtue of trading a player, you make your uh, opponent in the standings worse. Words that are true to my heart, Glenn Colton, I have to say, I've been talking about this for years here at Baseball HQ Radio, and, and it because so few players do that in fantasy baseball it can be a tremendous tactical advantage for anybody who's willing to figure that out and apply it uh, and speaking of that uh, we have listener questions to our email account uh, bhqradio at gmail.com and tony mack from belmar new jersey i don't know where that is but it sounds like a real cool place uh, he wants to know in a deep league when you come into the latter part of the season in September where do you look for speed are you looking at minor league call-ups or are you looking for guys who pinch run like a Gerard Dyson yeah I'm looking at the call-ups I mean one just came up uh, in the last day or so and that's Jankowski in San Diego 32 steals in the minor leagues and uh, looming on the White Sox minor league roster is Micah Johnson who would, you know, ran like crazy early in his minor league career I would look for guys like that who when they come up in September uh, or late August and are going to be looking to prove something, they're going to run, they're going to get the green light, and I just try to avoid the pinch runners unless it's maybe the last week of the year and you just know that that's the only category that matters. We talked earlier about football versus baseball and the difficulties of the two sports. Ben in North Carolina asks, because you're a baseball fan and a football fan, I guess he listens to your show, he's curious about a Major League Baseball player you'd like to see play in the National Football League and maybe an NFL player you'd like to see in Major League Baseball. And which positions would you like to see them play? It's, that's a great question. That's a lot. That really is. Uh, well, just off the top of my head, I would like to see Billy Hamilton play football and return kicks and punts. The guy can out-and-out fly, and I think it would be fun to see how often he might be able to take it to the house uh, and change a football game. As far as uh, football players going to play, uh, play baseball, I think it would be fun to see Big Ben Roethlisberger standing on the mound with the arm that he has and as big a guy as he is you know, firing a baseball. I think he'd be very intimidating. A few years ago, I happened to, to be at the Arizona Fall League for First Pitch Arizona. Uh, that's not a plug. It's just a f- simple fact. But if you, if you can get to First Pitch Arizona, you really should. Uh, and one of the players we got to see, it was a terrific year that year in the Arizona Fall League, but Bryce Harper and Mike Trout were hitting 3-4 in a lineup on the same team. And Mike Trout looks like a football player. I'd like to see Mike Trout maybe as a, a, a blocking back or maybe a, a, an outside linebacker or something like that. He looks like he could handle it. His build is that way. As for an NFL player going to the big leagues, they're so different. But J.J. Uh, Watt would be an interesting pitcher if he can throw. Speaking of big. <laughs> Scotty in Clemson, South Carolina, asks, do you give more weight to certain statistical metrics when you're evaluating younger starting pitchers versus established veteran starting pitchers? This is a great question. It is a great question, and I think the answer to that is no. Uh, it's 
when you look at the starting pitchers, you want to look at trends. Are they losing velocity? Are they becoming... Uh, are they pounding the strike zone more often on a trend basis? But the actual metrics, um, you know, when you get by, behind the metrics and you get to the more advanced metrics, the swinging strike percentage um, and the first pitch strike percentage and the ground ball percentage, I think those are the same ones you want to be looking at for uh, young pitchers and old. I'll go along with that 100%, except to add something you said a little earlier, is keep an eye on that walk rate. When they, when a young pitcher is making the transition from the minor leagues to the major leagues, you've got to be very very cognizant of the difficulty of controlling the strike zone. And uh, I think that's all also important for an established pitcher, but that's where I want to see if, they, if a young pitcher can find his way early. Uh, Kyle in Charleston, South Carolina, a lot of South Carolina re- listeners, can you give us a rookie stud and dud batter and pitcher going into the 2016 draft? I presume he means rookies this year or next year, very young players. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a great question, and it's great to see people getting ready uh, so early. Uh, and, and if they're not in it this year, to get ready for next year. My, uh, my stud pick would be uh, Trey Turner, who has hit 300 at every level, 25 steals this year, and uh, every year at least a 340 or more on-base percentage. So speed plus getting on base and play shortstop, I think that's a guy you really want to watch. And I think and maybe the dud in the short term would be J.P. Crawford, who is getting a lot of hype in Philadelphia, but hitting only 249 at double A. And he's got the speed and uh, you know he's got good uh, he's got a good eye. He's walked you know he's walked more than he struck out. But when you're only hitting two forty nine at double A, it says to me that you're not quite ready. Um, you know on the pitching side, uh, it's a little bit chalk, I guess, but Jose Barrios, uh, mid-90s, strikeout printing, just 21, um, very much similar to uh, uh, Severino. I think you'll see Barrios in, in the major leagues this year and somebody to watch uh, for September plus for um, next year. And the dud, you know, he throws 100 miles per hour, Frankie Montes, in the, in the White Sox organization, but 40 walks and 100 innings in AA says he's still got some work to do and may not be ready uh, to hit the big time in 2016. I love Jose Barrios, too. Uh, finally, Carl wants to know, with roster expansion around the corner, what prospective starting pitchers should listeners be aware of? Yeah, I'm going to go back to some of the names we've already mentioned, Patrick. Uh, Barrios, for sure. Tropiano uh, from the Angels, who I think is starting on uh, Thursday the 20th. Watch that start. And uh, the bounty from the Cueto trade for the Reds, John Lamb, that we talked about a bit earlier. These are guys that I think are the ones to watch for as the rosters uh, expand, and to me, they expand uh, starting around you know August 10th or 15th for the teams that are out of it. They expand, of course, later for the teams that are still in it. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Glenn Colton from FantasyAlarm.com and SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio. If you want to send in listener questions, uh, bhqradio at gmail.com. And uh, Glenn, before we let you go during the season, I always ask our expert guests to talk about facts and flukes, guys who are pitching or hitting above or below expectations and whether that's going to continue, that is, it's a fact, or whether there's going to be regression to a more normal level of performance, calling it a fluke. Let's start with a hitter in the American League. Uh, who's an outlier, and is he a fact or a fluke? I'm going to go back to uh, you know one of my old favorites, Robinson Cano, and hitting only 270 is a fluke. He's just a better player than that. He's still in his prime, and the uh, you know 336 average, 397 OVP over the last 30 days says his uh, underperformance is a fluke, and he will continue to bounce back the rest of the way. And in the National League, a hitter who's uh, under or overperforming? I think it's 
fact that Francisco Cervelli is this good, hitting 307 uh, on pace for you know for a catcher to be uh, you know close to 10 homers and 50 RBIs. If you take a look at the last few years, about the last 500 at bats uh, he had as a part-time player, he was 10 homers, uh, 70 ribbies, and a 370 OBP. Uh, over those last three years to put together those 500 at-bats in part-time play. And now he's got an everyday job and is performing. I think it's a fact. He's, he's here to stay. And that's a great piece of baseball research by Glenn Colton. When you're looking at players who are transitioning from part-time to full-time, give them their last full complement of at-bats over multiple years to just get an idea of what kind of counting stats you could be looking at and maybe Francisco Cervelli would be on your roster. I did that this year with Deonor Navarro and unfortunately he just didn't get traded as I expected he would. Uh, let's move over to the mound. Glenn, uh, who's an American League pitcher who's a outlier and is he a factor of fluke? I think the the underperformance of Kevin Gosman is a fluke that's been based uh, on some bad luck and some dramatic and tremendous mismanagement by the Orioles team. I mean, he, he's been shuffled between the bullpen and the starting rotation and AAA and back to Baltimore. Um, and once they left him in to start, he's starting to look very good. He's throwing incredibly hard, uh, almost 96 miles an hour average fastball velocity, um, very solid 11% swing strike percentage, but he's been unlucky. 10.8% uh, home run per fly ball is you know, way too high for a guy who, who's getting as many swings and misses and a 66% strand rate says he's been unlucky. So I think the poor performance of Kevin Gosman has been a fluke. Don't you find also that pitchers are so subject to these kind of usage uh, variations that must cause them a lot of, especially young guys, must cause them a lot of anxiety about their role and whether they, you know, putting too much pressure on themselves to be too good every pitch for fear of uh, incurring the wrath of the management and getting sent back to some minor league uh, bus ride somewhere. It's really awful. Oh, I, I, I agree with you. And, you know, there's... There's a funny scene, you know, in uh, Major League uh, that Charlie Sheen's on the mound, and uh, Lou Brown says to him, you know, you're my guy. Go get him. And it's just a simple thing like that. Say, I got faith in you. Go do it. And it makes all the difference in the world. And I know a lot of, uh, especially younger listeners, will think this is something relatively new because of the added pressures of the money and so forth in baseball. But if you read Ball 4, Jim Bouton is very uh, um, adroit at explaining the situation with certain pitchers, certain players, in fact, on that Seattle Pilots team back in 1969 who just rubbed the management the wrong way and therefore couldn't get a chance to play on a regular basis, and it does affect their ability. One of them was Mike Marshall, who turned out to be a Cy Young caliber pitcher and, a, and really a groundbreaking kind of pitcher in baseball who's still something of an iconoclast and uh, not that respected in the big leagues as I think he should be. How about a pitcher in the National League? Uh, Taylor Jungman is get, getting no love, and I think his great performance so far is fact. 2-2-3 ERA, 1.12 whip. This is a guy who, who pitches in a hitter's park in Milwaukee, but he keeps the ball in the park. 50% ground ball percentage, which you know Patrick is, is very strong, especially for a young pitcher. And he's struck out at least 8 per 9 since AAA. I think Taylor Jungman is a guy who's uh, fact, and if you can get him cheap, go ahead and do it because you'll be happy to own him the rest of the way and in 2016. Glenn Colton's facts and flukes. Robinson Cano underperformance is a fluke. Francisco Cervelli's good performance is a fact. Uh, Kevin Gosman's uneven performance is a fluke and maybe changing. And uh, Taylor Youngman is a fact with a terrific 
stats and terrific skills to back them up. Uh, Glenn, where can listeners read or hear more from Glenn Colton? Well, you can certainly read the weekly week that was, uh, baseball and football columns on fantasyalarm.com, and you can hear Rick Wolf and me every Tuesday night from 10 p.m. to midnight Eastern Time on Sirius XM Radio, Sirius 210, XM 87. Glenn, thanks a million for doing this. It's been so interesting and, and so much fun to talk to you again. Uh, are you going to First Pitch Arizona? I am trying to work on it. Your uh, good friend and, and baseball HQ writer, Doug Dennis, is actively pushing me, and I'm going to try to make it because everything I hear is it is an amazing event, both informationally and uh, tremendous fun. It is all of those things. Glenn, thanks a million for doing this, and we'll catch up with you again, maybe there, uh, certainly in the future here at Baseball HQ Radio. I look forward to it. It's been fun, Patrick. Glenn Colton is a host at SiriusXM Fantasy Sports Radio and blogs regularly at FantasyAlarm.com. We have our regular weekly talk with Todd coming up next, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our Playing Time Today coverage looks at the demotions of Matt Shoemaker by the Angels and Emilio Bonifacio by the White Sox. Our Facts and Flukes performance validation looks at Jonathan Papelbon, Gregory Polanco, Chris Davis with a K, and many more. And our Buyer's Guide skills assessments include Stephen Nickrand's updated analysis of starting pitcher-based performance values versus left-handed and right-handed hitters. We also provide daily matchup reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, minor league scouting, and of course, our projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, baseballhq.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN Fantasy Sports, FantasyAlarm.com, and Masters Ball. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be here, Patrick. The other day at ESPN.com in a free area, you'll be glad to know, a little difficult to find, but well worth it, was a round table where you were discussing with Derek Carty, Renee Miller, and Joe Kaiser some questions about when you're selecting daily fantasy lineups, and this I think is also applicable to streaming in seasonal leagues and may have ramifications even to full seasonal leagues. How much weight do you put on a player's production history, especially his recent past, and whether it's more important for a pitcher or a hitter? I thought this was a, a really interesting discussion. As the discussion went, it, it, it can go off into many different areas, which is why one, one reason it was picked as a topic, and we're going to have some ancillary topics that are going to be posted in the future. But you know, at the crux of it is, and I think we've talked about this before because it's one of my sort of pet analysis is – you have a baseline coming into the season, and actually part of the question was, what's that based on? Uh, because some of the people, Renee is, is, is sort of bridging into baseball from other sports, and she likes to learn, so she wants to you know, where do we get this baseline from? And, you know, the three years, I know Baseball HQ, their, their foundation for, a, for a projection is more than three years. You guys done some research that, that have a slightly different, you know, Marcel's is a three years, so a lot of our three years. So that was sort of the first part. I mean, the easy question was three years. You base your foundation on three years, but then it, it bridges into, all right, so when do you know to alter that original expectation in season? Because, and here's where it matters for, you know, all sorts of fantasy, seasonal or DFS, is, you know, when do, when do we alter it? And this is why I said it's one of my pet things, because 
I like to look at the different skills and use the studies that have been done to show when different skills are, are I hate to use the word stable because it's not stable, but when they're more likely to be real in season, contact rate being the one that's so early. And in May, you can tell uh, if a player's new or uh, spike or drop in contact rate is likely to last all season and everything kind of rolls off of contact rate. Uh, so that you know it matters in DFS too because we're not exactly sure of what the pricing algorithm is for these different sites. So if your baseline expectation is different than that of the sites, perhaps they're using outcomes, and we all know that outcomes aren't necessarily reflective of skills, you can find edges, you can find places where you can get a positive return on investment or avoid a certain player, etc., based upon you know better expectations than the site might have, or perhaps the site has better expectations than what should be based upon in current skills. So that's, that's kind of what, in general, what the discussion was going to be about. I thought Renee Miller made a really good point in that looking at recent hitting performance versus sort of that longer three-year view, the correlation is not particularly strong. And so you have to decide where do you want to put your, in daily fantasy especially, where do you want to put your money? Do you want to look at the more recent past? Do you want to uh, include or incorporate that baseline and do both? It's an interesting topic in that respect. What she did was, yeah, and this is, we kind of had a, off-the-line discussion to sort of make sure we were all on the same page. She showed some graphs that she's been working on where she took the weighted-on-base average, WOBA, of a player of a two-month period and correlated it to his career, and there was just no correlation. And I actually, we talked about this a few a month ago or so. I did a piece where I correlated BABIP to WOBA and found that there's some luck in, in weighted-on-base average, a component of weighted-on-base our base hits and there's some luck incorporated. Even though there's more luck in BABIP, there's still some luck in the weighted on base and the shorter the sample, a two month is not a particularly long sample, uh, there's gonna be some variance within a weighted on base average. So, you know, trying to look at a two month snapshot of a weighted on base and comparing it to expectation and deciding is that player better or worse, that's that's why I, I use the skills instead of the weighted on base. To me, Weighted on base is more of an outcome stat uh, than than the skill. So we we we, we kind of talked about that. That uh, she was more questioning whether that's a good way to go about it. What if I look at a player's weighted on base because she comes more from a from a football background as far as analysis goes, and it's a completely different scenario looking at two months worth of football data versus you know the baseline is just a different apples and oranges sort of way of looking at a player expect expectations. So, uh, you know, we, we kind of, you know, not talked her off of because she wasn't, she was more curious, is this the way I go about doing it? Because uh, intuitively, maybe it seems like it is. So, yeah, two, two months worth, you know, slice any season into two months and you're going to find, you know, all sorts of stuff. Just take a look at who was leading the American League in, in homers or, 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 or the National League in, in batting average after six weeks of the season. Or, you know, it's it's not the players necessarily that are going to be doing it for the whole season. About a year or so ago, maybe longer, at BaseballHQ.com, I did a study looking at batting average, which I know has a luck element, as well as home runs per some fixed amount of plate appearances, 600, I think. And what I noticed, and it jumps off the page at you when you do it as a, as a graph, is that over a career, when you're talking about or over the very long term, three, four years, 
that number stabilizes. Whatever number it is, it stabilizes uh, pretty solidly and maintains for uh, throughout a career. But if you take any kind of shorter interval, and this is not going to surprise too many people, the shorter the interval the more variation there is off of that standard. So the uh, the graph I did was of Derek Jeter's batting average. It was around 310 for his career. And it, it early in his career, it wobbled around. And then it settled in at this 310 number. And until he got quite uh, far along in his career when it started to dip off. But he had like an 18-year period where his, com- his cumulative rolling batting average was always right at 310 or within a point or two. But when you measured that batting average over season length or half season length or quarter season length, the shorter you make the uh, interval, the more wildly the, the the performance varies. And I think, why wouldn't that be true of, of pretty much everything? There is an element of luck to all the stuff this, these people do. And I, I'd be curious to do it again for contact rate and those kind of skills measures. But then we don't know that contact rate ties to production in any useful way, so I don't know how purposeful it would be. It's not just luck. I mean, we like to think of things in terms of luck. It could also just be that, I mean, a guy was at his home park for uh, uh, an extended period of time of that, of whatever measurement you're trying to do, however you're trying to parse it, or he, you know, a right-handed batter happened to face a, a higher percentage of left-handed pitchers. It's not just it's not just luck. It, it, it's just natural occurrences that, that need to flesh out over the course of it need a, a larger sample just to have those biases naturally flesh out or it just could be you know that that it just for, that, for whatever reason over the course of that week anything seemed to hit anything he hit seemed to find a hole um, so that you know that's you know why park factors are are three years and you know why we mentioned that why the foundation of a batting average I'm sorry a batting average of a projection itself is between three and five years just to get the you want to get the sample where this rolling average that you it, it was actually a really cool study to see this on the graph to see where this rolling you know does it stabilize does it need three years to stabilize does it need five years to stabilize so I think that's what that what the three and five years is it's almost as if it's 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 a it's the distant not the distance but the time needed for this rolling average to stabilize over time. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to like write a note to myself to stop using the term luck because I, I, I have seen some objections to it in various uh, baseball writing. I've seen some objections in the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums that you can't call it luck because it's not mathematically luck. There was a guy on Facebook who was banging on on this topic. I think when we say luck, what we're talking about is natural randomness or natural variation. And, you know, if a, if a guy at, with a 310 um, stable long-term batting average hits 400 for a week or 200 for a week. We call it luck because it's a term that is handy, but it, it may not entirely be luck. Some element of, of it is luck, it's, but it's really just an expression that means uh, some kind of variation that's essentially random. One of my favorite sort of analogies to use is the old coin flip. And if, if, uh, if 32 people flip a coin five times, one is going to get heads all the time and one is going to get tails all five times was that person unlucky or was that person just on the outer edge of the probability and you know depending upon you know what what is you know whoever you know whatever uh whatever you're using to to score i suppose is is then you can determine if it's luck or, or not luck or whatever but you know so some of these instances of what we say you know batted ball 
finding holes. All it is, it, it, it's all a probability. It's all a range. And it just was on either end of that particular range for that particular period of time. And, you know, three months later, he's on the opposite end of that range. And by the end of the season, he's right down the middle. You know, the, you flip the coin a hundred times and it's going to be 50 heads and 50 tails. But within the, within that flipping of it, there's going to be clusters of all heads and all tails, you know, that even out over the large enough of a sample. But there, you know, there, there is, you know, the, you know, there are individual instances of luck. Uh, but I think, you know, once you get sorted to a kind of a, uh, a, uh, just a, a, you know, kind of like spirit of the word versus, you know, letter of the word is, I think, where we get into our, uh, our, our problems. And also, I think people uh, attribute too much to luck, not knowing that there's other factors involved. I mean, when we first started talking about, uh, BABIP, it was, it was all, you know, all lucky or unlucky. Then we started talking about ground ball versus fly ball and line drive. And now we're talking about hard hit versus soft hit. And soon we'll be talking about trajectory. So as we fine tune, these sort of numbers, the luck gets fleshed out even more. You said in the round table that w something that you do that is probably different from what most do is that you're constantly adjusting the baselines based on what these players are doing in season because at the various times at which those rates, like contact rate, walk rate, hard hit, etc., stabilize during the course of the year, and that allows you to make adjustments based on the based on the what is a shift in baseline, a possible shift in baseline from what went before. And uh, your fellow uh, participants in the roundtable thought that was an interesting approach. Well, the irony is, is, is I've written about that for ESPN. Uh, we've talked about it too. It's, uh, it's, not a, it's more of a, a regression situation where uh, there's the expected contact rate, there's this new contact rate, and based upon the time of the season, is it, 100% real, 50% real, 25% real. So <clears throat> I'll adjust my, you know, I have rest of season projections just like Baseball HQ does. I don't know the secret sauce to what, what you folks do, but I use these. New, I, it's all based on skills. And the further into the season we go, the more the player's current level of skill is, is what I use as a, as, as, as my baseline. Uh, I shy, I not shy away from, but I, I veer off of what I expected and I move towards what's going on the further into the season. And, and it happens at different rates because different skills stabilize at different times. And it, it doesn't change. I mean, it rarely changes things huge in a, in a huge nature. And it's not always, it doesn't always work out either. Uh, but I have been able to identify players that continue to do poorly and i have been able to identify players that are likely to uh pick up their pace and we all like to do this and we you know we do these 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 babips we use the luck situations but i try to do it during skills and it, it helps you know it helps both in seasonal and in dfs I, I i start everything off of my expect my seasonal expectation and then adjust it according to that the game situation so to me, you know, it's applicable to both seasonal and DFS. Now, you know, from a seasonal point of view, anything can happen over six weeks. We've seen that, you know, a million and two times. So what I think a player is going to do, you know, who knows if that actually happens. But, you know, you just you know, have to, I kind of wrote a different piece this week. You sort of just have to base your decisions on what you know. And that's 
kind of what I know, and that's that's how I'm wired. That's my DNA, so that's what I go with. Now, some of the people in the uh, participating in the roundtable also made a point that that for pitchers it could be different than batters. We've been talking pr- primarily about batters here, and the likelihood of a pitcher getting on a roll came up in the conversation as well. Yeah, well, that was uh, that was your research that I cited in the piece. It was we did earlier done earlier this season, and. Uh, you know, and we've talked about it and written about it. You can go back on HQ and read Patrick's article. It's really interesting in that the a pitcher pitching well is has more of a chance to continue to pitch. Where there's a better than fifty percent chance that he that he continues to pitch well. And you know, as you showed in the article, and we talked about this too, the uh, there's some bias, and that good pitchers are just going to keep you know pitch good. But you can explain it better than I because you did the work. But it, it's also true on the lower level pitchers, which is important in DFS. Because are you trying to win a tournament and you want to use a lower price pitcher? If this lower price pitcher, if the algorithm of his price hasn't caught up to how well he's pitching lately, you might get a plus EV on that guy. You might get a positive return on your investment and I want to use him. Uh, or in my case, as well as I talked about in the article, I don't always use it. From the pitcher's side of view, what I might do is another person might might consider the offense as a strong offense to stack against a particular pitcher. But if I think that pitcher is actually going to do good because he's on a roll, I won't stack the hitters against him. I think a recent example is John Danks, who got on. A, you know, he's not the greatest of pitchers. But he had a two or three game stretch where he was he was doing the job, and he's one of our favorite guys to pick on in DFS because he's a fly ball pitcher. He's a lefty, which means a lot of right-handed guys, you know, get the platoon edge against him. So he's just one of our favorite pitchers to stack against. And it wasn't working for two or three games. So after the first couple of games, it's, you know, whatever. But after that third game, this is where I'm saying, you know what, I'm not going to choose him. But you know what, I'm not going to choose to stack against him either. Not until he, you know, comes back to earth and, and starts giving up home runs again. As I remember the research, and it's been quite a while since I did it, the, the key finding was that if you looked at the odds of any particular pitcher throwing a PQS 4 or 5 and then compared it to what he was actually doing based on his, based on his streak of throwing 4s or 5s, the likelihood of him doing it increased, it, which is not to say that he became very likely to do it. He just became more likely than you would otherwise expect based on all the other factors that, that go into it. It was, pr- it was a pretty interesting finding. It was based on a, co- a conversation that you and I had either on this show or in our uh, general yap fest after we get done and start talking about what we're thinking about in, in the research area. Now, the, the, the subject of hot streaks uh, also imp- implied or led to a discussion of cold streaks for pitchers and that uh, led to somebody mentioning Felix Hernandez who's had a couple of really horrendous outings I had him on a DFS one night I think we've talked about that in the past but he had another one recently in Boston I think a couple of innings 10 earned runs 13 base runners just an awful performance and that raises the question how do you respond when Felix Hernandez uh, just is terrible in a game how do you respond the next time he's out there Derek and I Derek Hardy and I were the main respondents to this and I, I I'm very curious when when someone like Derek responds because he's got an interesting uh, mix of he's gone he's been to scouting school and he's a numbers guy so he, he sort of can see it from both ends and it was kind of neat that we sort of both had the same answer. We both go back and we look at the start 
and we look for signs of, you know, does he look hurt? Is he doing something different? And if we don't find anything wrong, then it was just noise. It was either, you know, the Red Sox were just lucky that night and I happened to watch the game and, and there were a bunch of bleeders and bloops that got in and sometimes it just happens. Uh, and, and if, if there's no sign of an injury and the whatnot, I think he's fine. I think the better, we also mentioned in that same piece, I think it was me that said, you know, Chris Sale, two weeks previous to this, he actually, <laughs> coincidentally, the Red Sox did him in too, had a, had a two game stretch where everything was falling in. And, you know, he showed the two previous starts, especially the, the, the latest one where he, uh, was taken out after seven, but it was on a, on a pace to strike out, you know, break the record of 20, that it, it was just, you know, a, a two-game cluster where hits fell in and, and things just didn't go his way. So, you know, the, the irony of it is Felix has sailed tonight in a, in, in a game, so it's, it's kind of, as far as for DFS purposes go, is he going to get the win or not is now a big question, but is he going to pitch well? I'm fine with, uh, with, with, with Hernandez you know, going forward, his numbers this year aren't quite as good as they were last year, but last year they were career high. His skills are fairly close to what they were last year, and to me that's what's important. So, you know, if I'm in a seasonal league and I look and I need a, a boost down the stretch and my trading deadline hasn't expired yet and someone wants to deal me Felix Hernandez, I'm not scared off by his recent uh, woes. I think, you know, he, he'll... He, I think, anyway, he should be the same guy down the stretch that he's been. Whether he is or not, who knows? But I'm not scared off by a couple of blips. Another uh, topic that came up in your roundtable was the whole idea of batter versus pitcher. When you're looking at uh, picking your daily lineup, how much weight do you want to put on a batter who happens to have a you know 800 batting average and a 1800 OPS against a certain pitcher, but it's only in 10 plate appearances? versus uh, just relying on overall skills that have been established over much wider ranges. And I know that a lot of people are against this whole concept because of the small sample sizes, but when I talked to Glenn Colton earlier in this show, he says he does put some weight on it, and uh, he explained why, and I was somewhat convinced. It seems like a fairly reasonable thing to say if a guy has you know, five home runs off this pitcher in his last 12 at-bats, there's something going on here that maybe I want to bet on. This is sort of a, a pet topic with me as well. Um, numbers guys, the, I'm a numbers guy. The studies, at least the present research shows, and to me the key is is that success against a pitcher is non predict. It's non predictive. I'm not going to say it's it doesn't that that batter versus pitcher doesn't exist. The key to me is it's it's unpredictable. Uh, you've got guys that have gotten numbers such as, you know, five for 11 with two homers and a double. You've got two guys with those same numbers. You can't decide which by the numbers. I'm going to say decide using, you know, the guy, as I alluded to earlier, uh, I, I need numbers to, to prove it to me. I can't look, I can't look at the numbers and figure out which one of those situations the guy really does see the ball better, pick up the spin better, et cetera, in which of those situations it was just, you know, the guy, the round ball hit the round bat and the wind was blowing out and the guy had a good day. Uh, so I, I do think there are instances where a batter has certain success against a certain pitcher. I don't think we can scientifically identify that player. So while, so it's a subtle difference, but to me it's, it's important. And so therefore, I mean, I'm either subjectively saying, 
that this guy owns this guy or you know I, I don't think I gain an advantage by using it because I don't know that I gain an advantage it, it sounds kind of circular but that's that's kind of where I stand and what kind of bugs me more than anything are those that just you know that 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 make fun of the numbers guys how of course you know it's of course a guy they're human beings well if there were a study that showed that there was you know that a thing these these guys would be jumping all over that study that they're now poo-pooing me for you know the opposite study you know so it's kind of you know it exists but don't tell me that you know this guy owns this pitcher he's had success against him he might own him and you want to go for it go for it but don't tell me you know that that hitter owns that pitcher he he might but it's not definite but in all of these games uh, seasonal daily all of these games we don't know really anything and, and, <laughs> well, that's, and i'm learning that as i go on sure <laughs> and, and the question it seems to me is the the term that our friend gene mccaffrey uses is is this performance bettable and i and i think that's the question here and i don't think anybody wants to argue that you know somebody's gone six for 14 against a pitcher with three home runs that he owns him and we know this to be a fact but is it a bettable proposition based on the fact that he seems to be uh, somewhat in control of the of the transaction, at least so far. Well, I think I, th- I think that's just a different way of saying as a predictive. I mean, <laughs> he's saying Gene's saying bettable. I'm saying predict. If it to me, if it's predict, if it if it's predictive, it's bettable. So I don't know if it's predictive. Therefore, I don't know if it's bettable. So we're back to being a subjective case again. Um, and it, and and we're gonna find you'll find most of these positive batter versus pitcher scenarios have some other factors feeding into them. It's, it's, it's oftentimes the platoon edge. It's oftentimes a good hitter against a bad pitcher. Uh, there's some rare instances, you know, fairly famous instances out there, like Paul Goldschmidt owns Timmy Linscombe. Uh, so, you know, that's a right on right, you know, kind of a weird situation. So you can't, you can't just put that on. It's just a good situation. Uh, but, you know, from a game theory DFS point of view, if I'm trying to win a tournament and there's a lot of people in it, I might actually, you know, I don't even care if batter versus pitcher is real or not, but because I know so many other people do and will be on a certain player, I might purposely not play that player that night, not because I don't believe in BB batter versus pitcher, but because I want to find a different player that other people aren't going to be using because that's how I need to win a tournament. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, uh, in a Twitter uh, tweet that you put out, you mentioned that you're writing up a column called Guys I Like for Next Year. You made a joke about Marcelo Zuna because he, I think he had a big game the, the very night you made the announcement. So we'll skip him, but uh, yeah, give us a, an idea. I know you, uh, in the pitching ranks, are pretty high on Carson Smith as a closer for next year. Uh, maybe I'm a little bit gun-shy because wrote this column last year and, and the two pitchers that were headlining my my list were TJ House and, and Shane Green. And we, we both, you know, A know how that turned out and B know how several of my fantasy teams are doing as a result. So uh so I know am I gun shy or I just don't see a pitcher of that elk and I think there's a little bit of both. But however, I have had some decent, you know, success and I'm you know I'm not you know this isn't you know not you know I'm not the only one, but, you know, a couple of years ago, a guy like Cody Allen and last year Brad Boxberger, I try to find a, a closer that 
I feel will have the job next year and more than likely based upon league dynamics is available for a very, very cheap keeper price. Um, you know, I don't keep a closer at 20, but I'll, I'll sure keep Brad Boxberger at five. And to me, that guy is Carson Smith. He doesn't, he's not throwing, he's not a, a gasser. He doesn't throw 97. He certainly throws, you know, the mid, you know, lower 90s. He certainly throws high enough. I don't see Seattle going out and signing a big name guy. Uh, someone asked me, you know, am I going to keep Sean Tolleson on Texas? You know, no, because Texas is probably going to go out and signing a closer. So Smith has got a combination of the stuff. And I, you know, I, I don't know that Seattle's going to go out and get somebody. Uh, so if I'm in a keeper league and, you know, the league doesn't keep closers, well, I'm going to keep a Carson Smith if I have him for a, a single-digit amount. And on the batting side, uh, Delano DeShields Jr., who started the year kind of maybe not too secure in any kind of job role, is, now looks very solidly established in Texas, and, and you like him for 2016. Yeah, well, this time last year, my guy was Leonis Martin. I was all over Leonis Martin. Uh, he's going to be hitting leadoff. He's going to be playing, not platooning anymore. He's going to have a, a, a nice lineup at the beginning of the season with Beltre and, and all these other guys to, to knock him in. Uh, and, and now it just, it turned out that the Shields has displaced Martin on the team and, and on my list. Uh, I see a team in Texas that, you know, they, they acquired Cole Hamels not for this year. They acquired Cole Hamels to team with you, Darvish, for next year. This is a team that's going to go for it. They're already heavily invested in, in, in Prince Fielder in a contract. They can't go out and upgrade all these positions. They're going to need a guy like the Shields. Uh, a, he's good, and, and B, he's cheap uh, and controllable to, to balance out sort of their go-for-it mentality for next year. Uh, he's He's been hitting, any, you know, first or ninth. I don't know exactly where he's going to hit in a, in a, in a full you know, spring lineup for next year when they, when they do reload the other positions. But, uh, I dropped him in, in my mixed labor this year because he lost his job for a couple of weeks. And two weeks later, circumstances dictated that he's got the starting job again and he's, he's hitting, he's getting the steals. You know, he's, we all look for those, the cheap steals guys. So he's my, you know, fourth or fifth outfielder on a mixed league roster that I hope is going to get me those steals and come at a big, a bit of a discount because, if I'm looking for steals, I don't get all goofy if he's hitting first or ninth, because in the American League, the ninth place uh, position is, I think, third overall as far as number of steals. I think uh, first and second in the order, and I think in the ninth place position, there's a lot of steals that come out of that uh, that nine hole in the American League. So I don't get as goofy about it as I might if he was a power hitter. Todd, it's always uh, tremendously interesting to talk to you, and uh, of course, I recommend everything that you read. And now at fantasyalarm.com, you're still a regular. Uh, ESPN, you do a lot of behind-the-scenes work, I know, but you also have some regular uh, writing at ESPN, do you not? Uh, Five days a week, I do what we call the Daily Notes, and it has a a DFS tilt and a tilt towards uh, seasonal fantasy, with with especially head-to-head. So we'll, we'll, we'll rank the pitchers, we'll pick out the good pitchers, and we'll, we'll talk about some hitters for that day. So I do that five days a week. Uh, so that, you know, that's kind of my, uh, you know, my primary where I am as far as writing goes. And like you mentioned, fantasy alarm as well. Um, but yeah, and then, uh, still do the, uh, the tout, the, the, the tout and the labor review 
if you're interested in picking up some free agents in your league, we we give out the fab runs for tout and labor, and I offer my uh, hopefully a little pithy comment at the end of each run to uh, either talking about a player, or something I see in strategy, or 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 a TV show I happen to watch the night before if I can't figure out anything else to say. So those are my primary outlets at this point. Yeah, and the uh, the review of the fab that's at fantasy uh, masters ball i should say that's at masters ball on mondays and uh and you know anything you know i i tweet on anything i write i tweet out so be be sure to follow me at you know at todd zola my name you know t-o-d-d-z-o-l-a and uh anything i write i you know shamelessly gratuitously tweet out a couple times a day so if if you're interested, there it is. Also, some funny uh, one-liners and quips at Todd's uh, Twitter account as well at Todd Zola, T O D D Z as we say in Canada, Z as you say in the U S O L A, all one word, all lowercase. I don't think the case matters, but that's how it's set up. I think. Uh, Todd, thanks a million for talking with us, and uh, once again, we'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Yep, and let's throw in a, a quick plug. The other, you can also see him at First Pitch Arizona, and I know seats are selling fast, so. Uh, I'm sure you guys are talking about that, but uh, you get to uh, put a, put a, a picture, a name to the face, and maybe you won't be so uh, excited once you see what the actual face looks like. But anyway, first pitch Arizona is always a great time. Yeah, I was going to say uh, when you when you see the face, you might realize why we do so much work on podcasts. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right, Todd. Thanks a million. All right, we'll talk to you next week. Todd Zola, as you heard, writes for ESPN.com, MastersBall.com, FantasyAlarm.com. He does a lot of stuff that you don't see at ESPN, but uh, really contributes there as well. When we come back, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries. There's the Minor League Minute, Playing Time, Frequent Flyers, Pitcher Matchups, and I'll have Master Notes all coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Og Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, Anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Philly's catching prospect Andrew Knapp is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Philadelphia Phillies landed an impressive haul when they finally traded Cole Hamels to the Texas Rangers, highlighted by catching prospect Jorge Alfaro. While Alfaro is definitely the Phillies' long-term catcher of the future, his acquisition has completely overshadowed the breakout season of Andrew Knapp. The 23-year-old Knapp was a second-round pick out of California in 2013. The switch-hitting backstop has excellent offensive potential and shows plus power to the pull side. Knapp started the year well at high A in the Florida State League and has been red-hot since being moved up to double A, where he's hitting 410 with a 701 slugging percentage and 144 at-bats. 
Defensively, Knapp is a work in progress. He's stiff behind the plate and slow to second base. He also had Tommy John surgery in 2013, which further eroded his ability to stop the running game. Still, Knapp has shown enough offensive potential that a move to first base or the outfield shouldn't hurt his long-term value. For the year, Andrew Knapp is hitting 317 with a 394 on base percentage and a 492 slugging percentage. He has 31 doubles and 9 home runs in just 388 at bats and is definitely worth considering in deep and all only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage with prospects like San Diego outfielder Travis Jankowski, Yankees first baseman Greg Bird, Dodgers second baseman Jose Peraza, and many others and there's our watch list report a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up because of changes on the big league roster their own performance or both many players in the watch list are not top level prospects but they can all provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation in the latest edition, we cover mid-August call-up possibilities like Detroit right-hander Michael Fulmer, Twins right-hander Jose Barrios, Yankee outfielder Aaron Judge, and many others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or less. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at the game of musical chairs going on in Houston's corner infield spots. In first place, Houston Astros are doing everything they can to fend off the Angels and hold on to the AL West crown, and we've seen some notable playing time shifts throughout their infield in recent weeks. Our own Jock Thompson gave an overview of the situation last week in his Playing Time Tomorrow column on BaseballHQ.com. Jock mentioned that the return of Jed Lowry and the recent struggles of Chris Carter have shuffled things up throughout Houston's infield. First off, Lowry has basically taken over everyday duties at third base. Lowry's traditional position has been shortstop, but obviously Carlos Correa has a pretty firm stake there for now and into the future. Uh, Lowry is a pretty major injury risk, but he has great power and a fly ball swing that plays very well at Minute Maid Park. Through just over 100 at-bats this season, Lowry's hitting 280 with five homers, and as long as he's healthy, he'll continue to play every day. Lowry's return has basically removed Luis Valbuena from third and created somewhat of a logjam at first base in DH. Like Lowry, Valbuena has excellent power, but unlike Lowry, Valbuena is hitting 213, and while his expected batting average of 252 is in better shape, Valbuena will continue to be a batting average risk. His plus power also goes away quickly um, against left-handed pitching. Valbuena playing more at first will lead into Chris Carter's playing time because Carter's had an awful year at the plate himself. Um, Carter's contact rate is just a touch above 60%, and it shows in his sub-Mendoza batting average and 298 on base percentage. The power is still there as Carter has 17 homers, but the low average will cut into his playing time. So moving forward, expect Valbuena and Carter to split time at first, along with utility man Marwin Gonzalez. They will continue to rotate at DH as well, uh, with Evan Gaddis when Gaddis isn't behind the plate. The big playing time winner here is Jed Lowry, whose power and positional flexibility at third and short make him a solid play in basically all formats. The same can't be said for Valbuena or Carter, given their awful batting averages and, and the now sporadic playing time. 
For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com analytical tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers, Desmond Jennings, Chris Coughlin, and Franklin Gutierrez. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Because uncovering a few hidden gems near the end of the season can lead to a championship. In this week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll profile three possible hidden gems in your league, beginning with 28-year-old Tampa Bay outfielder Desmond Jennings. Once considered a top prospect, Jennings has fallen off the radar completely for most owners by missing 96 games this season. Although he's not necessarily known for his power, his career high is 14 home runs in 2013, Jennings' stolen base potential has been both tantalizing and frustrating. After swiping 31 bases in 2012, Jennings' production has shown a distinct downward trend, dropping from 31 to 20 in 2013, followed by another subsequent drop to 15 last season. Not exactly a buy signal. However, it's important to remember that Desmond Jennings, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, BaseballHQ.com rates Jennings' statistically scouted speed at 108, which is only slightly higher than the average player benchmark of 100 and nowhere near the benchmark for elite speed set at 200. Still, if his now rehab surgically repaired left knee was the cause of his lower speed ranking, Desmond Jennings could be a hidden gem, assuming he's healthy. He's worth a flyer if he's available. Our second frequent flyer takes us to the friendly confines of Wrigley Field, where Starlin Castro's devotion has created an opportunity for the 2009 National League Rookie of the Year, Chris Coughlin. With Acid Russell moving over to shortstop full-time, Coughlin has been earning playing time at second base. Already setting a career high in home runs with 13 and stolen bases with 11, Coglin, currently worth $14, could be a decent value play at second base for the rest of the season, especially in NL-only leagues. Consider this. Chris Coglin has twice as many home runs and just as many steals as Cleveland All-Star second baseman Jason Kipnis. Even though Kipnis is batting close to $330 for the season and worth $27, or twice as much as Coglin, according to BaseballHQ.com. Furthermore, Coughlin's $14 value is comparable to Robinson Cano's $15 value. Not to mention, both players have produced 13 home runs. In other words, once Coughlin is eligible at second, he would immediately tie Cano for third place among all Major League second basemen for home runs. In fact, Coughlin's linear-weighted power index of 159 for the last 31 days is a lead according to BaseballHQ.com's PX Benchmarks. Yet, Chris Coughlin is probably still on the waiver wire in your league. If he qualifies at second, he's certainly worth a flyer. Finally, our last frequent flyer takes us to Seattle, where 32-year-old Mariners outfielder Franklin Gutierrez has produced a 313 batting average with seven home runs since his June 24th call-up. Gutierrez, who is creating over seven runs per game on average, is batting 349 on the road with a whopping 1075 OPS. In fact, his numbers for August are even better. Gutierrez is batting 435 in August with four home runs and a 1502 OBS. 
Of course, his 352 batting average on balls in play for the season is about 50 points higher than his career average, and BaseballHQ.com only projects an expected batting average of 238 going forward, so it would be wise to prepare for regression. However, even if those numbers are unsustainable, the short-term games could be off the charts. If you want your team's production to be off the charts for the final weeks of the season, consider adding Desmond Jennings, Chris Coughlin, and Franklin Gutierrez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Matchups between 0 and 2 are dealer's choice. You have to assess those ones based on your risk tolerance and your league or game context. Now looking at St. Louis right-hander Carlos Martinez in San Diego to face right-hander Ian Kennedy, Minnesota right-hander Mike Pelfrey in Baltimore against right-hander Kevin Gosman, and two other matchups, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's the three-quarter poll of the Major League Baseball regular season, and no team has more than 40 games left in the remaining six weeks. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to look at some starters from some teams that will be making a push for the postseason and some that won't. For Saturday, we'll study a pair of National League matchups with the Cards' Carlos Martinez at the Padres' Ian Kennedy and the Brewers' Taylor Youngman at the Nationals' Joe Ross. We'll switch over to the American League on Sunday to examine the Twins' Mike Pelfrey at the Orioles' Kevin Gosman and the White Sox's John Danks at the Mariners' Taiwan Walker. The St. Louis Cardinals are beginning their stretch run and Carlos Martinez is in the thick of things. They have a trifecta of factors working for them Saturday, ranking first against right-handed pitchers, second in road record, and third against teams under 500. Martinez has a nice matchup rating of 227 for this contest in pitcher-friendly Petco Park. He made his first all-star team this season and he has postseason experience the past two years, so the cards can count on him. But Martinez's 142 innings pitched already exceeds his previous high by more than 30. St. Louis may skip him, push him back a day or two here and there, or limit how deep he goes into games during September, because they don't need him to stay stretched out with the likes of Lackey, Lynn, Waka, and the fresher Jaime Garcia as starters, if they plan to push Martinez into their postseason bullpen. So be prepared with a backup plan if you were counting on Carlos Martinez to carry your fantasy team into October. After putting together a run of 10 PQS dominant starts in 12 outings, Martinez has only one in his past four efforts. He's benefiting from a strand rate of 83%, but shows no other signs of fatigue in the past 31 days, even posting a higher BPV and fastball velocity. San Diego is only 500 at home. Nine games under 500 against teams at or above 500 like St. Louis. Though the pods are going nowhere in October, Ian Kennedy is still the subject of trade rumors and may get to extend his season. He has PQS dominant starts in five of his past six outings, including one in Colorado. And in his past six home starts, Kennedy has four PQS dominant scores. His matchup rating of 110 is more a reflection on his team than on his performance. With a dominance ratio of 8-8, a whip of 1-1, one, one, 
and an ERA of 263 over the past 31 days, Kennedy is a worthy risk-reward play. The Milwaukee Brewers are another team staying home after the first weekend in October. They rank 28th both against right-handed pitchers and against teams at or above 500, which Washington still is, barely. The Nats have been woeful of late, losing 7 of their past 10, 13 of their past 20, and 19 of their past 30 games. They've fallen 3 games behind the Mets and 7 games out of the wild card. Joe Ross has followed suit by following a 6-start PQS dominant streak with 2 straight PQS disaster zeros. In 8 and 2 thirds innings between those two outings, Ross allowed 9 earned runs, walking 5, striking out 7. He's still getting swings and misses, but his first pitch strike rate has fallen to 55% over the past 31 days. Even though Ross has the top matchup rating of the day at 273, proceed with caution if you're expecting things to turn back around for him on Saturday. Outside of an early exit due mostly to a couple of unearned runs, Milwaukee's Taylor Youngman hasn't had a hiccup like Ross's. With a matchup rating of 186, Youngman has two PQS 3s and 10 PQS dominant starts to his credit since arriving on the scene June 9th. Over the past 31 days, his BPV of 123 adds to his season-long BPV of 96. Youngman is not without his warts, though. His ERA of 223 is more than a run below his expected ERA of 341, thanks to a strand rate of 80% and his first pitch strike rate is two points below our benchmark of 60%. But Nationals Park is much more forgiving than Miller Park, and with the home team in a funk, Youngman could stay at the YMCA and still be refreshed enough to be worth the risk on this road trip. Mike Pelfrey of the Minnesota Twins has one of the two negative matchup ratings on Sunday, with a minus 046 heading into hitter-friendly Camden Yards to face the hot-hitting Orioles. Sure, he's had three PQS dominant scores in his past four efforts, but Pelfrey also has six PQS zeros, five on the road, where he's averaging a PQS score of 1-8. The Twins are no match for the Orioles. The Minnesotans are out of the running for the postseason, below 500 overall, nine games under 500 against teams over 500, and 16 games under 500 on the road. Baltimore is a half game out of the wild card. 18 games over 500 against teams under 500, and 16 games over 500 at home. Meanwhile, Kevin Gosman has the highest matchup rating of the weekend at 317. He also owns a base performance value of 99, and six of his nine starts have resulted in PQS dominant scores, including all four at home. The Chicago White Sox and the Seattle Mariners have nearly identical records, and both are going nowhere in October either. The Southsiders' John Danks is at a disadvantage in Seattle's pitcher-friendly Safeco Field. His matchup rating of 0-28 is more than two points below Taiwan Walker's 232. Danks has a BPV of 55, a whip of 139, an ERA of 461, and an expected ERA of 463. Of his eight PQS disasters, five have come away from home. In his 10 home starts, Taiwan Walker has an average PQS score of 4-2. BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickran noted that Walker posted elite BPVs of 168 in June and 149 in July. He's breaking out right before our eyes, and he's equaled his highest season inning pitch total of 141. The M's are running out of good reasons to keep running him out there this year. 
So this weekend, you can carry on with Carlos Martinez, Kevin Gosman, and Taiwan Walker. Temper your expectations for Joe Ross, take calculated risks with Ian Kennedy and Taylor Youngman, and stay away from Mike Pelfrey and John Danks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about that endless dump trading debate. Earlier this week, a topic came up again in the always interesting BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. This very detailed and thoughtful forum post was placed by a member who is poised to win his league, thanks in part to two fairly adroit dump trades he made a little while ago. But now this same owner is ticked off. The fifth place team, 15 points behind, has executed his own dump trade, which has created the potential for him to win the league. This deal upset the angry owner so much that he said he will consider leaving his league after more than 20 years, even if he hangs on to win it this year. The resulting discussion in the forum thread was very lively and engaging, and since I want to avoid lowering the tone, I'm going to put in my two cents here, also handing you a quick two cent profit. I'm doing this in the certain knowledge that I will not be ending this debate. Arguments about dumping in fantasy baseball have been going on longer than the discussion about whether the toilet paper should go over the roll or under. The Lincoln-Douglas debates were sound bites by comparison. The two main complaints in this situation, much the same as they always are, the dumping trader did not alert the league to his plans, and he didn't get proper value for the studs that he traded. I think both of these arguments are, in the words of the great philosopher Jeff Spicoli, totally bogus. First, there's this idea that a guy must announce his intention before a dump. This is an excellent rule for an army barracks, but it's a terrible idea for a fantasy league. On the surface, it seems to make sense that if someone is selling something, he should want the widest available market. This is the success of eBay. That pair of 1980s size 11 boot-style roller skates with the bad wheel bearings might get you two bucks, if you're lucky, from one of the 50 or so people who come to your yard sale. But the millions of browsers on eBay might include someone willing to pay five bucks or even ten. But how you sell your roller skates should be your choice. There are plenty of good reasons for an owner not to announce his intentions to trade or not to trade or to change his roster in any way. For instance, telling the whole league that he plans to trade removes an owner's first mover advantage. There's a reason Wall Street mergers are done in secret. Besides boinking the shareholders, of course, if word gets out that a deal is in the works, the other buyers might start turning up and bumping the price. Similarly, if an owner thinks he can snag a prime keeper in a dump deal, he doesn't want the whole league in there making other offers. As well, if the dumping owner announces he's dumping and gets a whole bunch of trade offers, who gets to decide which is the best possible deal? The owner, right? The rule encourages multiple offers, though, and owners whose offers are rejected will inevitably gripe that their offers were better than the accepted offer. So the only change from this rule is that more owners are mad. Also, there's the distinct possibility that the dumping owner wants to deal with Team X because Team X has something that this guy wants. In this case, the dumping owner wanted a $27 Bryce Harper. So his required announcement would have to be, I'm willing to trade Paul Goldschmidt and other expiring contracts to anyone in the league who's willing to give me Bryce Harper. 
Of course, only one other owner has the $27 Bryce Harper, so the same deal would get done either way. All that we've added is a layer of bureaucracy, and if that was our aim, we'd play Fantasy DMV. As someone said on this forums thread, the rebuilder may have wanted Harper above all else. Yes, other teams may have had players of value to deal, but if the rebuilder doesn't want those players, it's moot. He's going to do what it takes to get the guy he wants. Well said. Finally, the notification rule is a bad idea because it imposes added transaction costs on the owner, specifically his time. Let's return to our roller skate example. If he sells the skates to a hipster doofus at his yard sale, he gets his two bucks. If he puts the skates in front of all the hipster doofi on eBay, maybe he gets ten. But he also loses a bunch of time. He has to go through about 44 steps to make this transaction happen. Creating an auction, waiting for the auction to finish, arranging payment and delivery, finding or buying a right-sized box, going to the post office, standing in line at the post office, and finally getting the parcel into the post office delivery system. It's somewhere around step 6 or 7 that a guy starts to think, I should have just taken the $2 at the yard sale and been done with it. The time element also means there's real value in making the deal all in one go. As one forum participant said, I'd actually do exactly what he did, trade everything I have in one swoop to walk away with Harper and two other risk-free cheap guys, rather than trying to piecemeal together two or three different deals that might leave me with a hodgepodge of decent-ish guys who still need sorting out. I once had a yard sale where I tagged about 200 or so VHS movies at a buck apiece kept out the riffraff. Five minutes after we opened, a dealer came and he said, I'll give you a hundred bucks for the whole pile. Okay, a hundred bucks was only half of what I would get if I sold all the tapes, and had I stood there all day selling them one by one, maybe I would have made a profit. But I grabbed that C-note, I lost the potential hundred bucks, but I didn't have to stand around in my driveway on a blazing hot Saturday afternoon, haggling with a parade of old geezers trying to bargain me down to a buck and a half for Howard's and Andy Racerhead together. Instead, I pocketed the money, sauntered back into our lovely air-conditioned house, and watched a ball game. Best hundred bucks I ever didn't get. Similarly, the fantasy trader might see some value in dealing all his fantasy yard sale junk in one go so he can move on with other aspects of his life, such as prepping his football draft, watching a ball game, or looking for his old roller skates. This owner wanted Bryce Harper, and he got the deal he wanted. The only way to argue that this owner made a mistake is to assert that his judgment about current player value, future player value, and fairness isn't as good as yours. In this particular instance, there was a wide-ranging discussion of the 2016 keeper value of Bryce Harper at $27. I happen to be on the side of those who think it's a hell of a bargain in that league at that price, but what I think doesn't matter. What everyone else thinks doesn't matter either. It's not our deal. Now, this doesn't mean that an owner should stay in a league whose rules are bogus or unsettling or unfair, prone to exploitation or otherwise unacceptable to him. The forum members agreed. One of them said, you just have to shake your head and not let it bother you. I've been in keeper leagues for years, and I've felt exactly how you do now. The thing is, if the selling owner has been in the league and is expected to stay in the league, then you have to let him manage his own team. Finally, let's talk about the real core issue. This argument isn't really about Bryce Harper's value or that the dumping owner didn't announce his plans. The problem is that the first owner's assessment is based on his commitment to this season, 
and the second owner's assessment is based on his commitment to next season. In the words of John Benson, they're running two races on one track, and they have to expect problems. It's like the International Olympic Committee decided to run the 10,000-meter race and the 100-meter sprint at the same time and on the same track. And they might have to, given the problems they're having with cost overruns in Rio. You can bet that Usain Bolt would be griping that Galen Rupp had slowed him down. And he'd be right. But you can't ask Rupp to run a 10,000 meters at the same rate as a sprint. The only solution is to play the game by the rules of your league. And in the words of that esteemed philosopher Alice Cooper, if that don't suit you, that's a drag. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. So if we don't get some cool rules ourselves, pronto, we'll just be bogus too. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 21st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 50 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this Friday edition of the show from SiriusXM and FantasyAlarm.com, Glenn Colton. It's always great to talk with Glenn, and it's always great to talk with our regular Talk with Todd commentator, Todd Zola. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And remember you can always send us a message on our email address bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our guest expert will be Joe Sheehan of the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and Sports Illustrated, along with Todd Zola and the rest of our Friday cast of analysts. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. And so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.